0: VOCM OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, October the 10th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly and David Williams. He's produced the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709 273 5211 Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM which is 86-26. Well, hopefully you had the opportunity to have a pleasant Thanksgiving weekend, maybe lucky enough to enjoy a Monday holiday, and hopefully you were, had the opportunity to spend some of that time with your family. All right, let's move on to some sports to ease into it. Man, oh man... Holy Cross repeat at national champions in the Jubilee Trophy. Remarkable stuff. Beat Quebec in the final 2-0. Didn't give up a goal the entire tournament. Had three wins, one tie, and they are back-to-back champions. And, of course, last year when they won the Jubilee was the first time a women's team had won the nationals from this province or representing this province, and here they are as a repeat champion. So the MVP on the women's side was Shannon Galway. Five clean sheets in the tournament. So last year as a teenager was the backup. This year shining brightly as Holy Cross repeat national champions amazing stuff alright then for hockey fans the NHL kicks off tonight none of our lads will be in action so I haven't seen Zach Dean sent down I saw a story yesterday where the St. Louis Blues sent down four players to their AHL affiliate which I believe is Springfield but Dean wasn't on the list is he did he make the teams in the opening day lineup I'm trying to find it but I can't find it so the other lads hook Mercer kick off Later this week. And the Cornerbrook Royals, good news for hockey fans in that part of the province, are now going to join the Central West Senior Hockey League. They've got a new management team in place, of course, on the heels of the Deer Lake Red Wings making the same decision to join that particular senior, senior hockey circuit. Off go the Royals as well. Speaking of the Royals, and here's a great Royal from years past. It was 50 years ago today where Cornerbrook goalie God Dougie Grant played his first NHL game for the Detroit Red Wings at Madison Square Gardens against the Rangers. So he was a terrific Royals goaltender, played at Memorial for the Beothicks, played in the American Hockey League, played in the National Hockey League with both Detroit and St. Louis. 50 years ago today, Dougie Grant made his NHL debut. He's a fine man, and obviously a terrific hockey player. And when we follow along the NCAA, especially on the women's side, and know that Maggie Connors just wrapped up her brilliant career at the University of Princeton, and Abby Newhook, still playing with Boston College Eagles, scored over the weekend, add to the fold Haley Ryan. Haley Ryan is from CBS. She's 18 years of age. She's playing Division I hockey at the University of Maine for the Black Bears. She actually scored a goal over the weekend. So congratulations to Haley. Got a note from your mom. Obviously, the family. Super proud of Haley playing some Division I hockey. That's where Teddy Purcell played his hockey, too, at the University of Maine. All right. So bravo to whoever this person is who will eventually, through their Actions saw a a 34-year-old man from Quebec arrested, facing two charges of fraud over $5,000 in the old grandparent scam. You know, we saw an arrest here a number of weeks ago at the airport where someone from up along, I believe in Ontario, was arrested, having built or scammed a bunch of people out of their hard-earned money. So here's what happened. We know that the scammers can mimic a telephone number. It might look like it's coming from uh, Ontario, for instance, with that area code 647, but who knows where it's coming from? So here's what went on. This person used technology to mimic the voice of a grandchild and the, the classic old scam of we need money for bail nanny, and nanny ponies up. So they came, collected the money, but then they called back and said, we need more money. So at this point, she knows now there's something going on here. So what they did is called the authorities, said yes to the second call for money, and said, just come over to the house and pick it up. And when that person arrived, the police were on site, bang, arrested. Bravo, good thinking. And be aware of those particular scams. And then you look to where you can get some help. So there's a lady here in St. John's as part of the news story, Lisa Piercy. She's received 78 calls of that nature in the last two weeks. So, what does she do? We'll go to the CRTC. Remember when there's a block list came out and that was for uh, telemarketers? The CRT said, basically, we can't do anything. Then she called the police who said, well, we will report to the CRTC on your behalf, which, of course, is... Uh, waste of time because the CRTC said they can't do anything. So what do we do? I guess we just you know, remain vigilant and, you know, probably if the phone rings, your landline rings and it's not someone you know personally, it's very likely a scam. So I guess we just have to do our very best to protect our money. But it's remarkable to me that when you can identify some very specific numbers that are absolutely scams that the CRTC can't add that to the banner of the block list. But anyway, good on this person who called the cops and upon arrival, the 34-year-old from Quebec found himself in those silver bracelets and he's been arrested, good. All right, so I live in the east end of town and it is quite a sight to drive down the parkway and to see this growing tent city. I saw a great story this morning done by the CBC Investigates Unit talking about the fact that it was back in March of 2017 when then-Lieutenant Governor Frank Fagan delivered the speech from the throne very clearly talking about the priority that the government's put on housing and homelessness, and they want to create a very distinct plan to deal with that issue. Six and a half years later, there is no plan. So we've seen different announcements for different approaches, whether it be for emergency shelters and the 750 affordable units that are to be built, okay. But housing minister after housing minister, when asked about these questions about where's the plan, there is no plan. It very much feels like the healthcare issue because these things did not happen overnight. There was forecasted troubles coming with housing. There was forecasted troubles coming with the lack of health care professionals, from family doctors all the way down. So it does beg the question, where's the priority? Because here we are now at the 11th hour. I mean, that type of protest is a very stark reminder when you drive by and see people in tents across the parkway from the Confederation Building where they speech from the throne in 2017 talked about a housing plan, and here we are. In addition to that, one of the people who was part of the protest, when being asked about, you know, why not take the offer to take a, a bed in an emergency shelter? And the person said, it's safer in the tent safer in the tent, and here we are in the heels, of, pardon me, the winter is coming very quickly, but it's safer inside that canvas tent than it is an emergency shelter. Speaking to issues regarding violence, and the oversight, and the monitoring, and the supervision, and the enforcement of the rules at a shelter. Add to it, if you're someone who's done all you can to try to get clean, to try to break the death spiral of drug addiction, and then in the shelter, they're using all around you. So just imagine. Imagine being that lady. And she's not wrong. It's her lived experience. Safer in the tent than it is in a mercy shelter. That is a mouthful. So I guess we'll have to keep asking and asking and asking where those types of real forecasting, long-range models regarding housing, because we've heard the story. Whether it be 60,000 units over the next six years, when a banner year has been 25 housing starts, 2,500 housing starts, same issue, very similar issue right across the country, but no real guidance. You know, it's one thing to say, uh, take the GST off for a developer to build an affordable unit, rentals and otherwise, but it doesn't even cover the entire gamut of rentals, so not so sure how much that's going to help the issue either. One second, quick sip. All right, we're back. I continue to get emails from folks who are worried about some of the issues regarding RCMP presence. You know, we saw the conversation unfold on Fogo Island. Now they will have a fully staffed detachment. Then we know that the RNC is going to expand their geographical footprint, hiring some of 10 additional officers. But it is not unfair for communities to ask, will that do what we need regarding police presence and the ability to react quickly to emergency situations? They're talking about exactly that in Lewisport. They say there's been a rash of break-ins over the recent weeks, break-ins, robberies, what have you. And yes, you can indeed have a 24-7 RCMP line to call, but if they're coming from Twillingate, then that gives the mayor and others in the community, whether it be the drop in morale, the worry about safety, the break-ins at businesses and individual homes. So that's a question that is going to loom large. Now, the RNC probably had no choice but to expand because if the RCMP are not going to be there in the same force that they were in years past, well, the other law enforcement agency had to do exactly what has been now proposed. And there has been a million dollars in the budget and 10 additional officers. So Mayor Freak out in Lewisport, if you want to talk about, you know, because it's one thing to be the business that's been hit. It's one thing to be living down the street from a home that's been robbed. But that, it might not be you or your business, but it might be next time. And it does come with an impact on the community psyche when you see these types of things. Now, Corporal Garland at the RCMP says, it's not a real huge change regarding years past, but there's a different sentiment and feel out there because we've seen the stories from Stats Canada. We see the headlines that are about very serious crimes on top of the break-ins and the property crimes and what have you. So if you're out on Lewisport this morning, we'd like to join us on that front. You know what to do. Okay, a couple of energy related matters. So it wasn't that long ago we were told that the price tag to deal with the issues on the transmission line with the galloping of the lines based on wind and ice buildup. So we had to replace the turnbuckles. Or We're going to have to, Hydro's going to have to. Now the budget looks like it's some $28 million to do exactly that. So. What was designed and installed, and it won't be on the manufacturer's back because we decided to go with that particular turnbuckle, so it's on our dime. Hydro says it's on Hydro's dime, but Hydro's dime is my dime. So they're going to replace it with these airflow spoilers to try to control the galloping, which has seen uh, a trip of the system. Now, even go a little further and talk about the remote nature of some of these transmission lines through the long-range mountains. There was one instance when they had to respond to wires that had hit the ground. It took a couple of weeks by the time they plowed all the snow and all the rest of it. So. Will these airflow spoilers work? Fair enough. We also know that the Labrador Island Link passed the 700 megawatt test, but has not conducted and passed the 900 megawatt test. That got pushed all the way to April of next year before we look at full reliability of a system that was designed to carry as much as 900 megawatts. Add to it, and this work gets pretty confusing to me. So it grabbed a headline once again that Hydro was looking at installing a new diesel generator to look at the forecasted demand versus supply. The supply might not uh, be in line with demand by as early as 2030, so says Hydro in their forecasted models. Not even sure how they factored in, or if they factored in, some of the new numbers we're hearing about these wind projects. So just before we get to the recommendations come from Hatch Engineering. You know, I'm not a titan of industry. I'm not involved intimately with the business model for these wind projects. But let's just say, if Hydro, goes along with Hatch Engineering that looked at a variety of options, three different combustion turbines, 150 megawatts, 300 megawatts, 450 megawatts, running out six different types of fuels at a variety of locations, and they're recommending the 150 megawatt variety to be at Holyrood, and they say that about a few things. One is it the reliability of supply of the diesel that will be used to burn inside of that particular generator. All right. <laughs> no crystal ball available. So let's just say, has Hydro come up with a new forecast? Because prior to last week, we knew that there might be some requirement for these wind projects to rely on our grid. There might be some opportunity for them to sell excess power from their wind turbines back to our grid. We know full well that if they are buying power from us, they'll just pay a commercial rate. Now we're told that all the infrastructure requirements are on them. But let's just say Hydro says, okay, Hatch, you're right. It's one of these diesel generators. At that point, we'd have dirty power, which I think is fair to call diesel-generated electricity as dirty power. There's dirtier out there, coal, for instance, but it's certainly the furthest thing from clean. So, dirty kind of power from a a diesel generator that we will purchase and install and operate on our dime, diesel power to a wind project that's created to deliver greener options and alternatives like green hydrogen to an export market. So just think about it. Burning dirty fuel to supply a clean energy project, which we will not reap the benefits of the power generated, yes, jobs and taxes and royalties, what have you, but that cleaner power for export it's starting to call it's starting to be a little bit more convoluted now again if their business model works and people are rightfully asking the environmental questions and the timing of indemnities to be put in place but what does that actually look like? Because just world energy GH2 alone, during portions of the year, would require 24/7 150 megawatts, or up to 150 megawatts. So add to it all the transitions that people are doing in their own homes, and yes, electric vehicles, whatever else under the sun. Dirty power to fuel cleaner power that is going to be sent somewhere else. Amazing. You want to take it on? We can do uh, exactly that. Now. I'll get through this as easy as we can, albeit just absolutely horrific. There's going to be a lot of folks out there who all of a sudden are geopolitical experts, but on Saturday afternoon, you saw the visuals as much as I did, it's dominating the global news reporting, is the terrorist attack in Israel, Hamas, with a rocket strike that killed as many as 700 Israelis. Then, of course, the number of Israelis that have been captured and kidnapped, and the threats coming from Hamas to execute them for every unwarned rocket strike that lands in the Gaza Strip—it is scary. Now, there's all sorts of implications with deflections from uh, other issues on the face of the earth. You know, the polarization that has come from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, some of the coups and the military action we've seen in Africa. So, the conversation that does not get entertained here is where are some of the off-ramps? has never been peaceful in that part of the world. And now, so even if the country and so many pundits and others will be 100% all in in support of Israel, you also have to include, look, Hamas is a terrorist organization as far as I'm concerned. Two million Palestinians live on the Gaza Strip. So now the government of Israel is saying that they're going full bore. They're going to have a full-on siege. They're going to raise the Gaza Strip, withhold food and power to some two, uh, two million Palestinians living there. We're seeing unfold in real time contravention of international law, war crimes, because it's very clear inside the the rules of the world and the laws created for these types of initiatives, collective punishment, which is exactly what the Israelis are saying they will do, is absolutely a war crime. So look, it's not about whether I or you or anyone else supports the Israelis and or the Palestinians. And Hamas is not representative of every Palestinian. And this has been ongoing since the 1948 purge that has led to this colonization and or oppressors or occupiers, however you'd like to couch it, we're happy to take it on. But what we're not hearing a whole lot about is how does this end? Very similar to Russian and Ukraine and the polarization that is brought to bear. How does this end? I mean, because if you take both sides at their word, then the atrocities and the horrific nature of the crimes being perpetuated, and the uh, lack of warning for rocket strikes, killing people left, right, and center, I think the death toll as of this morning was somewhere over 1,500 people since Saturday. So, man, oh man, boy, oh boy. How are we doing on the phone there, David? And look, it's not an issue that I'll pretend to have any real true expertise, but I can see what's unfolding as easy as you can. And it's not a tit for tat in a both sides conversation. It's remarkably complicated. Anyway, a couple of half decent ones. Oh, the privacy breach. How how does this happen all the time? You know, so whether it be fertility patients and or as a result of the cyber attack to the Meditech system, and all of these emails going out that are not blind copying people, and in this case, yet another one of these breaches, and this is uh, surrounding folks who are, let's see here, I want to make sure I get it right. 253 pediatric patients with diabetes and their parents and guardians, all the email addresses all there for all to see. And yes, apologies will come from the health authorities, but learning a lesson from these fairly fundamental issues of protecting our privacy, no more important places to protect your privacy than with healthcare and or access to your money or your credit card or your banking information, but yet another privacy breach. I want to say a big shout-out and congratulations, bravo, to mental health advocate Christy Allen. She's been on the show many times. She actually came on to announce that this was happening. She purchased a couple of tickets to see Taylor Swift and put them up for a ticket draw. Money's going to the Jacob Potter Memorial Foundation, and apparently that uptake has been huge. They'll raise thousands of dollars for that extraordinary outfit and organization. That is the Jacob Potter Memorial it's those types of individual acts that make a big difference even if beyond the money you will raise it will bring further attention to the gaps the shortcomings and the need to do better so bravo to you christy that's absolutely from the heart and well-deserved recognition and monies flowing to and awareness of the Jacob Potter Foundation, the Memorial Foundation, serving folks from the ages of 12 to 35. We're on Twitter. We're some up Online. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. My favour is when you join us live on the air, which you can do right after this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number three. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patrick. How are you this morning? Not too bad, thank you. How about you? Not too
2: bad. Uh, well, I was... Uh Sitting there, contemplating giving you a call. You you mentioned the issue that's going on in uh, in Israel right now. And uh, 50 years ago, of course, we watched uh, the Battle of Yam Kippur. Little did I know that five minutes later, five months later, I'd be over there amongst all of that. Uh, I spent uh, I spent six months and was uh, part of Jerusalem Signals Troop. Uh, we were stationed at Cairo, but we were back and forth. So just mad at the back memories. And, uh, what we experienced over there, and I really, really, really feel for, them, for those poor civilians. Man, I can't, I just can't understand how people could be so
1: cruel. Well, I mean, you hear some of the interviews, there was a Canadian lady that I saw interviewed over the weekend, she's been in Israel for 15 years, and you know, always knowing that this was possible, because the yeah. conflict has been palpable for a long, long time, and now she yeah. says, there's never seen anything like this, what also kind of muddies the waters here, and again, I don't pretend to be an expert on this particular issue at all, but like, yeah. even with social media that gins it up the way it does, some of the videos that have been shared over the weekend aren't even from Israel, and aren't even from, uh, they're not even current. So so we're seeing things that's what it becomes very difficult to know what you're seeing who's the source the validity of because this This particular issue, on top of Russia, Ukraine, on top of what we've seen in Africa in the recent past, keep an eye on Lebanon, it's all becoming to the, it's getting to the point, or we're probably already at the point, where the so-called democracies of the world that should be playing a role, not as the world's police, but in establishing world order, we're at a point now where it's the breaking point. I mean, can we wind some of this stuff back? Because off-ramps look uh, certainly not readily available when we talk about some of the notables, but it's scary stuff. The weekend was horrifying.
2: Yeah, no, I think I could talk about this for not only minutes but hours because I've always said, "Why don't we have a, a global military force, United Nations, as, as a standing force? So when something like this happens, in they go and put an end to it. Like, same thing in Ukraine. Same thing. In, it was happening. Tom, the, the, the,
1: our connection is terrible. If you want to move around a little bit, see if we can clean it up. Yeah, I'm in the car right now, so calls. But that's not why I called.
2: Just want to very quickly say, if you can still hear me, that uh, that we have to help recognizing the issues with housing. We have a bunch of commercial space here that we're not using, and we've got a plan to place now, down. I'm working with our MHA, Mr. Den, so we can put eight good sitting rooms on the ground floor of some commercial space, uh, which hopefully. Uh, I'm
1: going to have to jump in, Tom, because the connection has gone really electric here. Okay, so, I'll, I'll, I'll call you back. Okay, I'll call you back. do okay. that. Okay, we'll rejoin, okay. Tom, because I think he's offered some important information to aid in the housing issue, but we have to be able to hear him. Let's go to line number one. Derek, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. How are you this morning? You're doing okay, thanks. How are you doing? I'm
2: calling about uh, waiting in the hospital areas. Okay, I was there last Thursday an emergency, and I was there for seventeen hours and uh lot wait but that's you can do it like that but uh main thing there was a lady that come in that um she was in her nineties and they brought her inside, checked her in and put her out in the waiting room, in you know, her wheelchair, which is ridiculous. And when my turn came up, I said, can you please take her in? And you couldn't do that, she said. I think it was ridiculous. And yeah, it's a long wait. And when them drivers come in, the short animals on the road, uh, they got to sit in that like six and there at one time, in the hallway, and then birds sit, waiting for the patients to get checked in. They can't leave till they're checked in. I think they should be checked in right away so they can get back
1: on the road. Yeah, the only problem with that, Derek, I get where you're coming from, and they are going to renovate at health sciences in the emergency room. Some of that is to deal with this offloading and the transfer of patients to the staff, because if that was the case and all you had to do to be at the top of the triage list was call an ambulance, sure so you know a lot of people, that's exactly what they do. If you knew you were getting in right away, that's what people would do, and that's not exactly oh, yeah. how we want ambulances utilized either, yeah. is it?
2: No, no, not that way, no. But I think they should have took that lady when I offered to.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. did they elaborate? I mean, is as simple as the triage list is what the triage the warden, list is.
2: And it sorry about that, and the word not the hell signs I was at, St. Clair's. Okay. So, yeah, there was six animals here at one time, they all waiting to get checked in. Then you check them in and put them out in the lobby with everybody else mm-hmm. i think it's ridiculous when it's people like that in their 90s you got something serious around with them you should never be put out behind
1: the crowd i mean we've heard and seen these stories in the past you know you'd see a senior citizen who's either lying on the floor or to lie across some uh, chairs been there for hours yeah. on end buddy mine was at the emergency room one night last week and uh, this was at the health sciences 10 hours to get seven stitches yeah, it's ridiculous. It, it's really quite something, no doubt.
2: Another thing to talk about surety for families and apartments, where you get people that the families grew up in, a, in those uh, apartments belonging belong to the city now, or whatever they are, and uh, when the family has gone, one or two people, the man and the husband, or just a man or just a woman, gets to stay in those apartments instead of taking them and putting them in a bit of senior rooms and giving them the three bedroom places for somebody
1: that needs it yeah. it's, it's a bit of a messy situation out there and you know I I think there's no such thing as a poor or unwarranted suggestion, as long as it's got some common sense associated with it, when we try to find a roof over people's heads. Because we have gone so long now treating housing as simply a contributor to GDP versus a place to live, a safe place to to lay your head and to raise your family. We've got to just change our tune in the way we think about housing, plain and simple. Because yes, it's the biggest purchase I'll ever make. Yes, it's the most equity I'll ever enjoy. But... There's more to it, especially when you look at government's role. I mean, my purchasing of a house is between me and the bank, you know, but government yeah. looking at the people who are unable to afford a home, whether it be rent or mortgage, the numbers of people who are homeless, that's government policy and a shift in yeah. the way they think about it.
2: But why should it be one or two persons in a three bedroom house after the family grew up Other the family's Fair,
1: Fair Thank enough. You.
2: Yeah. And well, thank you for your time, sir.
1: I appreciate yours. Take good care, Derek. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, that is quite the scene when, you, you know, you go to the emergency room and you see people who are elderly and frail and very unwell. Now, it's hard to tell what's wrong with someone simply by looking at them, right? So you might see someone that gets called in prior to this older person, and they look like they're not too bad. By They're able to uh, uh, maneuver under their own steam. That doesn't mean that they're not absolutely unwell and the triage nurses they got a pretty tough job I would imagine they do their level best day in and day out it's what goes on behind the emergency room doors behind the triage counter behind the place to register because you don't even know how many staff are back there to deal with anybody the elderly or those who are not quite in their senior years do you want me to take that okay Uh, Dave wants me to take the call on four, before we get to the break Mike you're on the air Hi, Mike, on
3: line number four, you're on the air. Oh Hi, how are you doing? Okay, you. I'm good. Uh, I was just wondering if I can bring up a conversation about uh, cafeteria. For can I say the name of the school, or am I allowed? Uh, sure. Uh, the Waterford Valley High. Okay. Um my daughter was just started there this year, and they got. I was down to the uh, curriculum night. To meet the teachers, and they have like 660 students, and this is what the principal was saying now: 660 students, and about half of them go across the street to the Village Mall to get their dinner. And I asked the question why. I phoned down and left a message, and and I got the answer about from uh, the receptionist. She said that up the last year. They did have a cafeteria, like a, a food service-wise one, like you can go in and eat. And apparently the company that was there, they pulled out because she said they were losing money because of the fact that they had to serve uh, healthy food. So, like, I can understand they saying you want to eat healthy food, but if you got 300 students going across the roads. that's a busy intersection. Uh, if they want fries and burgers and whatever they're going to get, they're going to get it across the street. So why not sell it in the school?
1: Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think we uh-huh. have a business model competition going on here inside the school. And uh, it's not that long ago, the Auditor General report looking at what's served in the schools. And there's a ton of schools on the, uh, in, the, in the province that aren't compliant, aren't in full compliance with the actual healthy eating guidelines that are in place. I know, I know the point you're making. But yeah. I don't think it's the lowest common denominator issue where if you want the old Grout you can get across the street, we'll we'll bring the old grout into the building. I, I don't know if that's the
3: right play. I uh, I I know well I know you get my point, but it's I, easier said than done. But like you only got four microwaves in the cafeteria. And the cafeteria is huge. Like four microwaves for six hundred and sixty students.
1: Yeah, I imagine yeah. there's
3: a pretty long yeah. lineup. Well, I, I would say for like anyway, I I emailed an MHA on it, uh, and they said they were looking into it. But you now, how long is it going to take to find out? Like to get something in there, or or if anything is going to go in there? Because I know it, at another school where she went to before, we had the hot lunch program. You know, you order month by month. You know what I mean? You, yep. Yeah. Uh, anyway. No, I don't think they. I don't think this. That's going to be down there, either. I guess for high school or whatever. But uh, like, they don't even have a vending machine on her, or sandwich walls or you know what I mean. Like, if, if they don't have nothing on her.
1: So what do they offer yeah. at the cafeteria?
3: What do they offer? Yeah. They don't. They don't serve nothing on her.
1: There's nothing. It's simply a room to eat in with four microwaves.
3: It does it? Okay. They got a, um, what was it, a Kids Eat Smart program for breakfast. Yep. Apparently, they has that, I don't know if it was every day of the week or if it was only certain days. But apparently, they gives them apple, orange, you know, something to grab and go quick and go on, and go on to their, their uh, classroom or whatever the case may be. But that's, like I said, I don't know if you said it was every day or it was every, every second day or whatever it was. But that's all they have. Now where the where the cafeteria like where the kitchen is, I never noticed to see if I didn't see where it was too, but all I've seen was a big open space with all the tables where they had all the chairs there and they have four microwaves.
1: So yeah, I don't know what the appropriate number is, and I would imagine it's also not what you can get for options for as a student to go across the village and into their food court, but it's just the fact that they want to get out of get out of the school get off school grounds you know that's as a much lawyer. a thing as wanting a burger or whatever,
3: <clears throat> yeah thrown than, off.
1: other than the uh, cafeteria related matter how's your son or daughter uh, transitioning into high school and you know especially for mo- most students come from a smaller junior high than, than before they get into this massive school like Waterford Valley
3: yeah yeah she's she's doing okay with okay. it she says it's a big 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 change I know they get a, they get a lot of traveling to do. <laughs> I was down there and they got a, like that's a huge school for them out there you. Yeah,
1: it is. It's a massive school. I've been in there many times. That it is. Mike, I appreciate the time this morning. Hopefully the school year goes well for her.
3: All right. Thank you. you Thanks
1: welcome. for welcome. Anytime. Take care. You have a good day. You too, sir. Bye-bye. All Come right. on. Uh, there we go. Okay, let's take a break. Uh, how are we doing on the phone, Dave? Anyway, we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about that growing intensity of protesters right across the street from the Confederation Building. Don't go away. Start
0: your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go.
1: 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John Center, leader of the party. That's Jim Dinn. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air.
4: Good morning, Patty, and thank you for having me on in this mozzie all day. No problem. (laughs) I just want to talk a little bit about the tent city and about the people who have now made this their home until something uh, more permanent is is decided. Uh, I have been checking in with them every day, um, usually dropping out a few supplies, whether it's coffee, muffins. Yesterday, we uh, provided uh, 25 turkey dinners. That was uh, the NDP executive, provincial executive, so uh, we've been uh, keeping in touch. and i will say this from talking to them this is not an ideal situation but they've been getting tremendous support uh... they feel empowered they're organized they uh... they're very clear in what they're looking for and what they want uh, they want something other than shelters that's for sure we did were spo- i was supposed to meet with minister pike on friday past to discuss some of the concerns that they had uh... that unfortunately that meeting didn't take place so i followed up with the letter, but just to hear what they have, what they wanted passed on. They wanted basically, uh, they wanted something from government—a reasonable time frame as to when they can expect to be in a real home that is safe, affordable, and allows them privacy. They wanted, they requested that adequate, nutritious food be provided in shelters that f- reflects the dietary needs of those who have to stay there. They're requesting that CSSD increase the comfort allowance for those who, uh, for uh, people who are in the shelter, from the 62.50 every two weeks, so that. Works out to about $4.16 a day that they have to live on uh, outside of that. Uh, they want more wraparound services, uh, social workers, healthcare to help them deal with mental health and addictions. And they would de- dearly love to have a. Um uh, basically have one social worker that to they uh, i guess that they can that they can speak to uh, rather than what they call the revolving door of social workers they currently experience so those are five things that they wanted uh uh to deal with we uh and and I'm hoping that we will still at some point be able to meet with the minister and have that discussion. The other issue I know i've heard you uh, that I think a previous uh, caller was talking about uh, converting government buildings an and empty space, and that 's something I certainly i've brought up before, and I think it 's an idea worth considering. Uh, I brought it up with regards to the nurses residence at the uh, at, when I was uh, 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 over at the uh, uh, my God the grace General Hospital when I was first elected
1: but certainly that wouldn't be uh, conducive for reasonable because some of these places there's a reason why they're abandoned
4: oh, I agree, but I think you know when they uh, when you look at it, the investment I guess is look at how do you you could reno- start the process of renovating them and you're right, and at that time, I was told that you know that if, we, if they had proceeded with that idea ten years ago maybe prior to that it would have been uh feasible but there are buildings that have been recently uh, abandoned that uh, or uh, are no longer in use that could have that could be converted now I guess what the this is in response to a lot of people and even the uh... tenders themselves they're looking at the number of vacant buildings that with uh... some work would give them i guess the privacy that they demand Otherwise, what we've been dealing with, I'll tell you here in, in my office, we've had people who have been moved out of shelters where they had their um, their own, I guess, space where they felt reasonably secure, and some of them, and uh, the, several of them, have been um, been moved have moved from uh, shelters from as far as as Clarenville. And they've been moved the shelters in town to congregate living where they do not feel safe, and they've ended up over at the, uh, at the tent city. because. And I, and I heard you speak about this uh, at the beginning, about where they, they feel safer there than they do in the... Uh, in, in Let's the just shelter. pick up on
1: that for a second. Yeah. Because that is really a mouthful, to feel safer in a tent than it is in a shelter. Yeah. For every reason, whether it be the potential for violence and or if you're trying to kick a habit and you're being surrounded by people using, yeah. it's just an untenable situation. My worry, look, I get the concept, whether it be tiny homes or modular homes or trailer parks or affordable units or apartment buildings, like whatever it is, we've got to consider it all. Repurposing some of these buildings, let's just dig into that a little bit further. Yeah. We might, let's just say the hoyles right? just to pick one off the top yeah. of my head, yeah. or McPherson before they sold it. Repurposing it and calling it affordable housing and safe housing unless all of those additional supports are in place and supervision and monitoring. What we've basically done is created another emergency shelter. So we probably haven't solved anything. You know it'll be short term solution that would have the same long term complications as the current shelter system is presents.
4: And I would I agree with you on that. I would actually, one of the things that we've called for again is to do with the support of housing. I have brought these issues up with uh, personally, and I, I'm sure others have too. I'm not the first. But in terms of when you're looking at people, uh, there are people who are difficult to house, who have significant uh, mental health, addictions issues, and other issues that they that they need to address. You just don't put people into a uh, into a shelter and uh, or into a house and say, well, we're done. But that's the start of a uh, of, uh, of uh, some stabilization and, and supports, which you do have to have. And this is the other thing that like, uh, what they were looking for is basically having the wraparound supports. They're fully aware, the, the, the people who are living there, they're fully aware that they themselves or other people that they know uh, are in need of supports to stay housed. I've been dealing with this, and I, and I should say my constituency assistant as well, and uh, Liz and I, with people who are uh, who are uh, dealing next to very disruptive neighbours. They feel they feel unsafe, and the question I've asked is, how do you keep people housed who are difficult to house, so that they remain housed, they don't uh, end up on the street, and how do you make sure that people next door are also able to live, uh, enjoy their 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 homes uh, uh, quietly, and and to uh, and feel safe and secure? But I agree with you, Patty. You just don't simply put them into another, uh, you know, build, uh, build individual rooms and say, well, that that's it, we're done. But I will tell you that for some of these people, uh, I met one lady uh, on Sunday night as I was uh, at a gas station, and uh, she had been moved from a, uh, a a shelter where she had her own room, and she was moved to the, uh, on the, the shelter on La Merchant Road, and she was... Uh, upset she was uh, she felt uh, like she said her own mental health was now uh, um, at, at risk and uh, she was out bumming uh, money as she's by herself said you know just a supplement just to make enough to uh, other than the sixty two fifty that she 's making every uh, every two weeks and I guess what i i 'm going to start with here is that how do you increase stability in people's lives having a place that they can call their own is a start having sufficient money that they can afford uh they can uh, more than four dollars and sixteen cents a day is is, is, is certainly uh, as, as another piece but having the mental health supports when and where they need it at the time they need it is is the other piece but i, I look it, it all I can tell you is that uh, I'm in a, uh, fully in agreement with that but at some point I think <clears throat> if if emergency shelters become a long-term solution so people are in emergency shelters for months at a time it's no longer emergency shelters it's become the default position. And that's where we've headed. Last year, I think I was talking to you, uh, my first time I had people who were living up in Pippi Park, chose to live up there. Another lady chose to live in a car, refused to go into a shelter because, as you just noted, dealing with addiction, sometimes the person who was uh, who had been uh, harassing them or abusing them was sleeping uh, in in the same room they did not feel safe I was talking to a lady this year Uh, she again is sleeping in her car Uh, she's uh, finding out she refuses to go to shelter she does not feel safe again they've lost their homes in some cases because of medical they've been thrown out of work they didn't have the uh, necessary benefits to keep them uh, safe and sound and but this is the situation so I, I to me the emergency shelters, when I think of emergency shelters, this is just a transition piece for a week or two until we get you straight, straight away. But when it starts to become the, the norm, there is a problem. And uh, I think, you know, at some point, one of the things I've written today is give me an idea of the, uh, these 850 units um, that are supposed to be built over the next three years. And is there a way we can expedite this so we're not waiting three years? The problem is upon us now.
1: Mm-hmm. Jim, I appreciate the time this morning. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Jim Din, uh, the NDP member for St. John's Center, of course, leader of the party. Uh, Let's take a break. Melissa's in the queue. wants to respond to what she just heard from Jim Din. Sean picked up on the whole thought surrounding using or repurposing a government building. I said Halls Escazoni. Why? It just popped into my mind. It wasn't so that is a good option or a bad option, but Sean wants to pick up on that. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Melissa, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay, thank you. How about you?
5: Good. Um, the reason for my call, um, I totally respect Jim Din and I've seen him give out coffee and food, and that's absolutely amazing. The one thing I wanted to mention was last night they had a lady from the government up at Ten City and she was offering everybody like short term housing, shelter, shelter out of the cold, right? It, it's not a, a be at it thick solution, but something to get you out of the cold. They had an elderly lady up there. She was 67. You know, a lot of people with health issues to get out of the cold. And what I'll tell you, this isn't just a low-income issue. I myself, I'm uh, I'm a landlord. I'm renting to a teacher in a one-bedroom apartment with two kids. You know, this isn't just With people with addictions, mental health issues, low income, this is everybody.
1: There's a significant percentage of the population that is a missed paycheck away from homeless. I mean, homelessness, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean sleeping under the overpass or sleeping in the foyer of an ATM. It's not that. It's more than that, because how many people are actually technically homeless, but they have a roof over there because they're sleeping on their buddy's couch. How many people do indeed have a roof over their head, but it's in a very unsafe environment? And how many people, once again, are a paycheck away from being out on the street looking for a buddy's couch to surf on? You know, so it's bigger than, I think you're right on the money there. It's not just folks who aren't one stereotypical socioeconomic category. It's bigger than that. There's no question.
5: Exactly. And you know what? I'll even say it as a landlord. Why not have rent a rent cap? You know, um, there's people that like, I never thought in a million years, like we got a beautiful one bedroom basement on apartment. And I never thought in a million years that we'd have, uh, you know, a teacher down there with two kids renting to them, <laughs> you know, it's sad, it's sad. And, you know, I, I get it. Short-term shelters are not, not a, it's, it's a band-aid. Right. And I I, and I get the people that live in that area. They don't want to see these shelters and they don't want to have the issues of addiction and people with mental health and and all that. And I I get that piece, too. Right. But it's not just people with low income and mental health issues and addiction. It's it's everywhere. And that's what we have to look at. It's a bigger piece. But I'll give I will give the government a, a hand up here. They were out there last night and they were giving people the opportunity to have shelter. And I will give the RNC a hand up. They were out there a lot checking on people, making sure everyone was okay, um, making sure people had food if anybody needed anything, uh, just making sure everyone was safe and okay. And I think that's absolutely
6: amazing
1: the need or the presence of an emergency shelter is never going away it's not because there will always be somebody some people men and women children older folks who might need an emergency shelter but the trick is now it's been the go-to it's that people feel that the emergency shelter might be somewhere where they're housed for months and months and months on end versus, as what Jim Din pointed out, the transitory piece that it should be. Because, yes, we're going to need them, but it cannot be the ultimate backstop for folks who need somewhere somewhere safe to lay their head. We've kind of just got to change our thinking on the whole housing issue period.
5: 100%. Anyway, thank you for your time. I just wanted to... Give a shout out to the the government for being out there last night. And also, I gotta give a hands up to the RNC. I, I've seen them out there every day, and it's not a, it's not a technique of coming at them like we're here to uh, be aggressive. It's actually a technique of checking on people and making sure people are okay. And I, I love seeing that. That's awesome good for you
1: they play a role in this conversation as well melissa i appreciate the time
5: yeah no problem you have an amazing day stay you, blessed
1: you too bye melissa okay bye i am fortunate that's for sure let's uh line three sean you're on the air how you doing today patty grand how about you
7: not too bad no you were saying about the uh oh, this is only home there about turning it into a shelter or whatnot maybe possibly yeah, You're like, and I'll you were saying stuff about uh, you were saying something about well, if you did that, you would have to put, provide all these services and, and whatnot, and that's somewhat somewhat true. But my uh, my thought is, why don't we uh, why don't we ask if there's any investors out there who would want to take that building off the government's hands, just give it to them and let them turn it into like an apartment building complex of some sort.
1: Government has been trying to sell it for a long time.
7: Yeah, instead of selling it, why don't you just give it to an investor who would turn it in, because it's going to help the government in the long run. It's going to help with the you know housing housing shortage. Give it to an investor, let them turn it into uh, an apartment building like some like you see on Torbay Road. And those apartment buildings are just ran by you know there's a superintendent that lives in them. I lived in them in the past myself. And if you don't follow the rules, well, you're out.
1: Simple as that. Yeah, I get the concept now. In the past, the uh, government selling these properties, McPherson School comes to mind, it got sold for a song. Why? Because there was a lot of work to be done, remediation regarding asbestos and all kinds of stuff. Still valuable property, but how do you say, for, let's just take your uh, thought a step further. So I'm the developer, right? I'm the private person. I got the investors in line. You give me the Hoyles Escazoni, which people who I know used to work in there said it was a death trap. So you give it to me. How does government ensure that I do something that suits government's needs? Because I could turn that into, like, the condo development they're putting in Churchill Park, where some of the rents are like $3,000 a month. So does it come with strings attached? Because value and profit, you know, that's where I'm doing it as a private investor. I want to make money. So how do you make sure that we get the intended outcome? Because low-income, affordable housing, so to speak, is not a big moneymaker for the private developer.
7: Okay, and, you know, maybe I'm dreaming here, I don't know. But no, no, I'm just talking to you. No, seriously, but maybe there's an investor out there who don't want to make a uh, billion dollars off the property. Maybe there's an investor out there who wants to, who who is more for low-income people. I'm not saying low-income as in you're on income support. Someone who's making minimum wage or whatnot, that's low income also. Maybe there's an investor out there who just wants to recruit some of his money back at the end of the, at the, end of the year, or instead of making millions and millions, but put the idea out there just to see if there's an investor and obviously would you need a contract to say okay we if you're gonna if you're gonna have the like there's buildings there's buildings up on uh, Empire Avenue that are restricted for to so say seniors and there's 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 a cap on the rent in there I know there's another apartment building on Brookfield Road they don't charge a ridiculous amount of rent out there I, like I said I lived in these apartment buildings over my life over my life and I know that some of them the rents are, are reasonable and even even in today's market these apartment buildings the rents are reasonable compared to like someone who's renting a top flat of a house for three thousand dollars so maybe if they went and looked for an investor who's not trying to be become a multi-millionaire or you know line his pockets just probably get some of his money back maybe that investor is out there but if you don't ask they're not going to know
1: yeah maybe there's you know. Regardless, if someone has that altruistic spirit, it still comes with significant risk to take on a property. And I know we're just using it as an example the whole Hoyles Escazoni area, because even just transitioning that to livable, safe uh, place for, whether it be affordable housing or however, however we're going to approach that and the caveats attached to it, comes with a pretty big risk so i mean if government's listening we've been talking about repurposing government buildings of which there are many in various parts of the of the province many of them have been sitting there We're just carry carry costs insurance for instance we're just carrying it and nothing goes on in there no one works in there no one lives in there but it's just on the government's uh, ledger and maybe there's better decisions we can make with them uh, i appreciate the suggestion and the time this morning sean anything else you want to say what?
7: Yeah, just one more thing. and sure. is a bit, little bit different, but kind of the same. Like you know, you see these, you see these men and sometimes women standing outside, you know, on the busy intersections, looking for a handout, looking for a few dollars, looking for, uh, you know, a sandwich or whatnot. Uh, I was talking, and, and you know, I was talking to a guy there yesterday. I stopped there by one of the busy intersections and had a quick chat with him. And I asked him, I was like, I see you here every day. I said, I I come by here in the mornings. I go that way to go to work on Sundays. And I said, I come by here at three or four o'clock and you're still here. Like that takes a lot of effort, in my opinion, to be able to do that. And I I said to him, I was like, like, not to get too personal. Like, what's your struggles? Like mental illness, addictions. He's like, I just don't want to work for somebody. So that's his choice. He's choosing to stay out there on, this, on, on that corner to, to collect those few dollars, and maybe he's homeless. He told me he had nowhere to live. So I said to him, why don't you try to change your life around? You know, See if there's a government program. See, can you go back to school? See, can you yeah. go get a job somewhere? Maybe you can find somewhere better to live. Maybe your life can turn around a little bit. So a lot of these people who... I don't mean to say these people, but the guys that are out on the the corners collecting a few dollars, trying to to get a few dollars or a sandwich or whatnot, that's the choice they're making. That has nothing to do with me or you or the government.
1: No, but I mean, and those are all very different case-by-case case individual stories. Uh, so, you know, it's difficult to put a label and a whats your problem" sort of question to people because there could be very valid reasons why they don't have opportunities in front of them, like re-education or retraining and or working or whatever. I, I get where you're coming from, and people say that to me all the time when it comes to the panhandlers and stuff, but, Sean, I'm off to I the just news. See, I,
7: no problem. I just, I just see, like, that takes, for me, that would take a lot of effort to stand up in the corner for 8 or 10 hours looking for a few
1: bucks. Fair ball. I appreciate the time, Sean. Thank you. All right, buddy. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, wind energy. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain
0: weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you.
8: I want to start off with um, October being uh, Child Abuse Prevention Month, and uh, I know it's in the news there now. And Connie Pike was on Friday with Linda and listing off the fact that for the month of October in our ten courts, there's 301 charges. <clears throat> excuse me, fi- um, uh, for 55 offenders for crimes against children. And like Connie uh, said, only 10% of cases are reported and only a small number of the 10% that get reported go to court. So if you you start doing the math, that's a lot, a lot of children who are experiencing uh, traumatic events, which of course go on to lead to uh, lost or significantly impacted lives. And, uh, you know, we've obviously been working hard to try and change that. And uh, the Kids in No program, which we've been pushing for, and my wife, Bev Moore-Davis, has been pushing for since 2018, is slowly getting implemented in the schools, which is positive. However, you know, for all the children that right now today go home to that kind of horrific life, um, we're trying to take some steps this month to, A, bring attention, but also take some concrete action. So we want to announce a contest that we're running. It will be available Thursday on firstmilesfoundation.com's website. Parents and caregivers will be able to download um, a safety circle or safety network worksheet. And the purpose of that is that children identify five safe adults that they would go to if they were hurt or afraid or if someone had done something to them. And uh, every child, once they fill it out, their parent or caregiver will be able to email it to a private email, and every child who does that is going to receive a free game of laser tag at Frontline Action. And as well, at the end of the month, they're going to draw for, give the child a choice of either a free birthday party, or we'll travel to their school, no matter where it is in the province, um, give them a $500 uh, credit towards whatever. And and again, trying to motivate to do what the the Kids in Our program does, but but to kind of supercharge it within the province.
1: Fair enough. Whatever we can do to, you know, raise awareness and plant those seeds of somewhere safe to turn for children who are going to participate in this, fair enough. Good on you.
8: Thank you. Um, so I want to get into the wind to hydrogen projects and specifically a couple of really big things that are in the news and and the, the people who are against it. I'm, I'm not. It's not for me to decide whether we should do these projects or not. Um, however, I think into this equation needs to come to the fact that our oil fields offshore are declining every year. They're down like 17% this year. And um, with that obviously comes depleting revenues, jobs, and all the other things as these things come offline, which they will. I mean, even turnover, which is coming online now, is only supposed to have another six to eight years. Um, and most of our oil fields have expiry dates on them.
1: Uh turnover, I think we're 80 million barrels maybe out there.
8: Not a lot. Right, right. That's right. Um, so, you know, so one thing that they're talking about is decommissioning fees, which I think is an important um, thing. And, you know, they're saying there should be money put in an escrow account. And I hear Dr. Hear Keefe, who I have a lot of respect for, talking about that. However, what I don't hear when he's on talking about Beta Nord is what the decommissioning costs for oil fields, offshore oil fields would be, which estimates are between $350 million, all the way up to over a billion dollars per oil field um because you have to take all that all the uh, subsea infrastructure off the ground you have to fill in glory holes you got to decommission gbss and take everything off it and clean them all up so there's no oil there so um and then cap them and you know a lot of times what we're seeing around the world in the united states alone there are literally um tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of oil wells that are not capped and the consequences of that are they leak methane into the atmosphere and they have significant um, impact on the uh, environment so so I think I think it's a great conversation to have however not to be uh hypocritical but the oil companies what they do is they list the decommissioning cost on their balance sheet however two things are relevant there's no money tied to that we don't have access to it and, and secondly, anything over and above those costs that they've allocated, the province is on their hook. They can go back after past royalties. So that's a huge liability.
1: Well, and it yeah. comes with part of our equity stake is right through end of life. So I've never really fully understood why the equity piece is so important to the government. Uh, the timing of the indemnities to be put in place regarding the wind projects is important, and it should be straight up polluter pays. When you talk about beta and that's eight different wells at this moment in time. So it's hard to imagine a World where three. 350 million dollars fully decommissions an oil field of that scope and scale so yeah fair point i mean because investment in is own is exactly that it's investment out that becomes the i guess the yoke around the company's neck and they should be on the hook for 100 percent of it well i guess based on their percentage of their stake of ownership you know between them and bp canada and us if it ever gets going yeah
8: and not only that, the, what the majors do, they do a little bait and switch. So what they do, they'll sell their ownership to a smaller company. This is very common. For Alberta's dealing with now with thousands of orphan wells. So then, of course, once they sell the say, you know, sell their their e- equity, now they're not on hook anymore. And then all of a sudden, now this company just goes bankrupt because they're not the big majors. So, so these are all real threats on the horizon, real liabilities for us not just our children and grandchildren but we're we're in the time scale of it being ours and so so that's important I also want to get into the demand the electrical demand so you know that goes both ways which I think needs to be realized is that you know if we have 150 megawatt for example for the West for the GH2 World GH2 project that, that 150 megawatts can flow both ways you know potentially we could buy off them if we needed, if we had a failure of the Labrador Island link or something else, that power can flow both ways. Because these projects are all building twice as much generating capacity than they require. That's one it's at full capacity, because they know that the wind's not always going to be blowing uh, to that point. But, but also the nice thing with wind, a lot of times we have the biggest demand when the wind is blowing the most, because we have the most thermal loss to our structure. So it's Potentially, that power flowing both ways is relevant, and and the fact that they're only requiring, relatively speaking, a small amount of power, 10 megawatts. I know there was a gentleman on last week talking about how we need to build infrastructure to have to have you know business, and this would definitely be in that category. And for people's information, um, Long Harbor has 85 peak megawatts and 76 average so so, so the long harbor if, if we were to say every one of the five approved uh, wind hydrogen projects needs 10 megawatts of firm demand well that wouldn't be as much as we as we allocated to long harbor uh, ioc and wabush mines up to 300 megawatts of of firm demand in labrador cornerbrook pulp and paper 23 megawatts come by chance 31 megawatts so to put it in perspective Uh, These are just – I'm just trying to put information out because a lot of times we want to make these binary or very simple black and white decisions, and they're not. And this province, as the world, needs a transition because I know if people aren't aware of it, both disease and trends and the economy moves from, like, Europe to United States, United States to Canada, Canada to, like, Atlantic Canada, Atlantic Canada, Newfoundland. It always happens here last. And so all this stuff is is going to happen. I mean, in the world – in the last in August, um twenty percent of all new vehicle sales were EVs. Uh and and like that's just that's just a wave that's coming at us and so
1: Yeah, but that, the global uh vehicle fleet is still around three percent E V.
8: Correct. But I mean, you know, if you could see the future you don't need to look very far to see where it's going. Like nope. like the fact that forty percent uh eighty one percent of all vehicles in Norway who we obviously should be emulating EVs, thirty point five percent in China. Uh, 17% in the EU, 8.7% in US. So so like that's what's happening. This is not just a, you know, people can you know, we we tend to figure that because it doesn't it doesn't align with our lifestyles now that these things aren't going to change, but but obviously most of us are around enough to see very significant change. And you know, I just want to I want to close with you know, a lot of times people who are like anti climate change or or don't believe in man caused Climate change, and a lot of times the spokespeople, people will tear them down because they have some sort of financial incentive to be talking, about, or at least they perceive them to be. And and I just want to quote the Pope, who I know we can be critical of. Roman Catholic Church is no debate, but he came out um, a week and a half ago and said, said basically he challenged world leaders to commit to binding targets to slow man-caused climate change before it is too late warning that God's increasingly warming creation is fast-reaching, a point of no return. We are now unable to halt the enormous damage we have caused, and we barely have time to prevent even more tragic damage. Francis Warren, you can look at New York being flooded, Hong Kong being flooded. You know, the maritime's getting pummeled by tropical storm after tropical storm. And you it's time for us all to realize the world is changing, and we need to adapt quickly. And I call on people to think about it and try not to go into their camps into their tribes like we're all in this together and i call on people to do whatever they can to make a difference
1: thanks for the call tom thank you take care bye bye and before you send me the email that's a uh, it's a hoax the oil companies don't think so they've testified under oath in front of the american senate committee on uh climate that they absolutely have understood their role in what emissions mean uh for decades They know exactly what's going on. So you can say that, well, this guy doesn't believe it or what have you. The oil companies have admitted as much out loud, documented. So anyway, let's keep going here. Let's go to line number one. Rhonda, you're on the air.
5: Hi. Hi there. Hi, I'm just calling from Beta Spare Highway. Um, I picked up a last fast interior uh, about 10 minutes down Beta Spare Highway. So um, I'm hoping the owners are looking for them and they're listening and, um, and are able to come and get them.
1: Hope so. So you've picked up a Boston Terrier on the Beta Spare Highway. You can give out your number. We also will automatically hear suggestions that you go to one of those Facebook groups with uh, lost pets. People go to that right away when they lose their animal, dogs in particular. So give that a shot as well. But do you want to give a number out or just leave it with Dave?
5: Yeah, no, sure. I can give a number out. Okay. 709-538-7078. 538-7078.
1: Five three eight seven zero seven eight. Thanks for this, Rhonda. Let me know what happens.
9: Okay, will do. Thank you. You're
1: welcome. Take care. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. Dave, did you say you want me to take another one as well here before the break? Uh, okay, let's do it. Line number three, Lindy around the air.
10: Good morning, Betty.
1: Good morning to you.
10: I was just listening to that uh, gentleman on there talking about the uh, power usage, whatever. But anyway, he said the a pulp, and paper. They don't generate their own power, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, so.
1: Yeah, but it's still just the amount of power they use, not who provides it. Yeah, fair enough.
10: Right, you are. Now this one here, get get insulation, get cozy, get rebates. Uh, that's an advertisement from uh, who?
1: Take charge now, probably, yeah.
10: Yeah, but one thing they don't say with the insulation. And I've never seen. i in one of their advertisements. I've never seen. It's got to be at least R18.
1: Yep, yeah. R18 all the way up to R30 for talking about the crawl space and stuff. Yeah, right you are. Yeah, and I think but, the minimum for the attic is maybe 50. Yeah. Okay.
10: I had my I had my basement done. I thought it was all set for a rebate, and when I sent it in. Uh, the insulation in the in the uh, in the basement was R12,
1: so no rebate. And add to that, you're only eligible for that particular rebate, which is up to two thousand dollars. But your house, ha- the primary source of heat in your home, has to be electric. So if you've got an oil furnace, you're not even eligible for this rebate. So don't even consider it.
10: Oh, very good. Yep. Something else I just learned. <laughs> okay, sir, that's it
1: for me for today. No problem, Lindy. Thanks for this. Thanks, Matty. Okay, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, that's a couple of things there. There is minimum air value requirements, and there is the requirement of the primary source of heat to be electric to get in on that. And I think it's up to 75% of the cost of insulation for the basement, ceiling, or walls, up to $1,000. Rebate up to 50 if you're talking about your attic, up to $1,000, adding up to that 2000 maximum available. All right, let's take a break. Talk away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number two. Good morning, Hondas. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. Welcome to the program. What's on your mind?
11: Uh, we have an issue here. Well, I'm, I'm from Birchie Bay originally. I don't live in Birchie Bay, but my uh, grandparents are buried in the Pentecost Cemetery in Birch Bay. The guy who lives next door to the cemetery had some pet rabbits, tame rabbits, and he released them about two years ago. And so those 12 rabbits are now 60. And they have our cemetery destroyed. Holes engraved some two feet deep. Now, there was a funeral last weekend, and people have complained about stepping in rabbit holes. Can you imagine somebody going in there and breaking a leg or an old elderly person going in, stepping in one of those holes and breaking a hip? I've contacted the church. I've got no response. I posted it on Facebook, I posted it on different sites, no response. I've set up a a change.org web page, no response. It's like nobody wants to do anything. But I mean, we pay, or my parents pay for a burial site at that cemetery, so they pay maintenance for this cemetery, which nothing be done, and it's time to stop. It needs to stop.
1: So stop how? So I suppose what you're suggesting is they trap as many, as many of them as they can. Is that what you're saying?
11: Well, it should be the the owner, the one that released the rabbits. He should have to go and catch his rabbits and do, do with them properly, euthanize them if he has to. But he shouldn't be allowed to let them run free. I mean, if I had a dog and I let my dog run free and my dog was destroying your property... It would be a different story, wouldn't
1: it? Yeah, absolutely.
11: Right. So, why would a rabbit be any different?
1: Is that common for rabbits to do that kind of damage?
11: Well, uh, rabbits dig holes, dig burrows for to for to have their young.
1: Sure. I, I mean, I, I know what they do and how they behave, but they're digging them as deep as you're describing. I don't, yes, I'm not sure sir, I've seen that, that, but okay, fair enough.
11: Who feed in graves. Wow. And I mean, like, it's to the point that you go to the cemetery to a funeral and there's rabbits everywhere. And it's getting to the point now that you're bringing coyotes into the picture because the coyotes are coming out and getting the rabbits. So when the coyotes clean up on the rabbits, what happens then? Then they go after the pets.
1: Well, they when they run out of one food source, they'll find another one. That's right. Yeah.
11: So, I mean, something's got to be done. I mean, eventually it's going to be a child that's going to be out playing and a coyote is going to come along and grab them.
1: I don't know why anyone would release those rabbits like that in the first place, because obviously they will reproduce very, very quickly. Is there any, any comment coming from the church or from the town? Nothing.
11: I have a few comments on, on one post that I had there. Like, I think eight people commented, but nobody would sign a petition. So everybody wants to do something, but nobody wants to do nothing.
1: Fair enough. Uh, it's, a, it's a strange problem to have, but a real one all the same.
11: Yeah. And, I mean, these rabbits are destroying, like a, like I say. If I were to go in now, I, I mean, I've worked landscaping. If I were to go in there and do a job in that cemetery to fix that cemetery the way it is, I'd want 25000 $30,000.
1: And of course, that would be on the church's dime, and however they, you know, of course, we all know how churches raise money. So that's a yeah. strange issue for the folks at Birch Bay to be dealing with, and no question. So, when were the rabbits initially released? About two years ago. Yeah, so if that was a dozen, it's every bit of 60 now. Exactly. Yeah. Because, I mean, they breed twice a year, three times a year if it's a good year. Right.
11: And, I mean, they had four or five rabbits each time. So, it don't take long.
1: No, sir, it does not take long. And once again, David uh, said before we were coming back that this is a sounds like a very Newfoundland and Labrador problem, but it's a very real problem. If it's ripping apart the cemetery the way you describe, then someone's going to get out in front of it. You would imagine the church acknowledges what's going on. The, uh, whoever the municipal leaders are in Birchie Bay know what's going on. Maybe just maybe they can try to do something about it.
11: But see, it's been brought to the town before and nothing has been done. I think it has a lot to do with who the person is that released the rabbits.
1: Okay, that generally plays a role. Right. So basically, he can
11: release the rabbits and do what he wants, but if you do it, we're going to do something about it.
1: Unfortunately, relationships and personalities do drive some of these reactions. There's no doubt about that. It's one of those who you know kind of things. Yes. I appreciate you bringing it up this morning. Anything else before we say goodbye? Thank you. All right. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Uh, and I was only aware of the insulation rebate for homes that were primarily heated by electric heat. But apparently, and thank you to Jody for giving me the information, there is now a newly introduced energy efficiency in oil heated homes rebate for insulation as well. So delete what I said about only homes. Primary source is electric heat. It also includes a new program for those homes that are heated by oil. Appreciate the information, Jody. We all want to get it out there and accurate as possible. Let's take a break. Don't go away your voice in newfoundland and labrador's biggest conversation
12: if you want to know what's happening in your province tune in to open line every day
0: have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m on open line with patty daly on your vocm
1: welcome back to the program let's go to line number five and say good morning to the conservative member of parliament uh, elected in and serving the folks at to base central notre dame that's clifford small good morning clifford you're on the air good morning how are you this morning patty not too, not too bad thanks how about you
13: Oh, pretty good. good. Just uh, having decided to give you a little shout and talk about carbon tax, Bill C-49, and uh, some of the things that are happening in Ottawa, and I'm sure some of the listeners are interested to hear about.
1: Sure. I mean, the non-binding motion that was voted down uh, not so long ago, it's the fifth time in the last 12 months that this type of motion has been brought to the floor.
13: Absolutely. And, you know, Atlantic Liberal MPs, most of them have voted now twenty four times in the la- in the last eight years against conservative attempts to uh, get rid of the carbon tax. But it seems that they're going to keep with that with their narrative that you know, we need this carbon tax to to fix climate change. But, you know, China China's building two new coal thermal generating plants a, a week
1: it's, it's astounding. And China's adding more renewables than ever before as well. So let, let's talk about narrative, because that's an interesting word here. Because, look, we're not really necessarily talking about policy any longer. We're straight up talking about the politics of this particular issue. How do you factor in some of the information we're getting from the Bank of Canada, Stats Canada, the Parliamentary Budget Office? Because what they're saying, like, let's just talk about the general rate of inflation. The Bank of Canada says the carbon tax adds about uh, 1, 0.15% to inflation. They talk about every $200 you spend on groceries, the implication of the carbon tax is about 40 cents. Then they go on and talk about gas pumps. We all know what it is, that the gas pumps is 14 cents, and that's, escalate, that's going to escalate over the course of the next six and a half years to much, much higher. I can't remember the number. I think it's 61 cents in total. So if that's what the Bank of Canada says, then how big a deal do you really think the carbon tax would be?
13: Well, the carbon tax is hitting everybody in the pocketbook. And this fall, this winter, is going to be the first time that Atlantic Canadians are going to be faced with carbon tax on home heating fuel. So if the cost of living is high now for those poor folks that have to heat their homes with uh, heating fuel well the the carbon the the carbon tax on home eating fuel is going to be uh, slightly over twenty cents a liter so on you know uh four hundred liters eight hundred liters it's it's simple math and households are struggling currently they they most of them probably haven't had to fill their their oil tank up yet so it it is a big deal and I think that uh Those that are elected in Atlantic Canada should be reflecting the views of the people that put them there when they vote on these motions. And I'm sure there'll be more. There'll be more opportunities for Atlantic Liberals and Liberals from Newfoundland and Labrador to show their constituents that they support their
1: wishes. I don't think there should be a carbon tax on home heating fuel, period. Again, when we talk about the carbon tax, it does come with rebate, and regardless who has been the parliamentary budget office or the officer, I think that that organization, that office does really important work, and many, many times is completely opposed to what the government is telling us. So I think they should be considered a trustworthy source. They've been consistent over the years. When they look at the implication of the carbon tax itself, and then you add in the rebate, somewhere in the neighborhood of 80% of households will get at least as much as they pay on carbon tax or more back. The high income households will absolutely bear more of the brunt of it because they consume more and then consequently produce more emissions. So if that's, first off, do you understand or agree with or believe what the PBO is telling us on the rebate front?
13: Absolutely. And according to the PBO, by the time that carbon tax won and Two, which is cleverly called the fuel, the clean fuel standard, by the time they're fully imp- implemented in 2030, it's going to cost the average household in Newfoundland Labrador $2,166. So we're not far away from 2030. So every year it's gradually, gradually, gradually going to get there. And uh, that needs to – we're not just talking about what's happening currently – it's about what where we're going to be in the future, so it needs to be removed, and especially from home heating. Uh, and I know, you know, uh, Mr. Gilbo, he's he's in he's in charge. And um, another thing that that pertains to Mr. Gilbo is, is Bill C forty nine, and there's clauses in that that can shut down our future oil and gas exploration in offshore Newfoundland Labrador so there are some concerning things it'll be interesting to see how Newfoundland Labrador MPs vote on bill C49 given that there's you know you don't even need to read the entire bill it's right there in the summary item uh, item G where, whereby if a, a new oil and gas project Uh, is being considered in an area, and it's possible that in the future that area may be uh, turned into a marine protected area, then the minister will have the power to pull their permit.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> well, I mean, that all goes hand in glove with what actual demand will look like, what the business model looks like for the potential proponents. And on the price of food, I'm the grocery shopper in my house. I'm painfully familiar with what I'm seeing. So, for some of it, you know, we're paying more for actual less. You know, if I was buying, say, something for $5 for 500 grams, now I'm paying $7 for 400. H- hard to see how that gets reversed. Stats Canada, RBC, Scotiabank, Bank of Montreal, their economists. They're lead economists on things like regarding grocery prices and food inflation and I just gave you the numbers that Stats Canada and the PBO are using for the impact on the price of groceries they say that it is demonstrably proven that it's the terrible weather it's the flooding and the fires and the droughts that have caused a massive import for uptick in uh, price for fruit, vegetables and meats so with the Conservative Party's plan if that's what the inputs are looking like and that's what's complicating and seeing elevated food prices what is the answer? because if it's not about curbing emissions what is it?
13: Well, the fastest way to, to slow emissions is to convert coal-burning uh, electricity plants to natural gas. Right off the bat, there's a 50% reduction in emissions by switching to a cleaner
1: fuel. Well, that, those incentives are already there, right?
13: Well, uh, you know, if we, if we were allowed to sell our, our natural gas to China or or Germany or anywhere else that's and in fact in Germany Germany's brought more coal on in the last year than any other country on a on a per capita basis so because they've had to
1: we can only control domestic issues though necessarily right you know we can see these wind projects try to export green hydrogen to Germany or wherever the market may end up being I don't know what how that's going to work or what it's going to look like but when we talk about our own sovereign control our own domestic issues and if that's what the inputs are looking like for food inflation and food prices where is what is the plan
13: Well, we've got sovereign control over the permitting of uh, LNG projects completely. We're we're totally in control of the permitting process. And there were somewhere around 15 proposals for LNG projects when the Liberal government took power in 2015. And there's actually one being built that was the permitting was started before Justin Trudeau took power, the one in Kitimat. So... You know, we can we could do a lot of work and provide a lot of clean, burning natural gas to the world, and that would be that would be a great contribution by Canada right now. And then down the road, maybe they can switch to uh, green hydrogen when all that's all fully developed. But in the interim, we need to use interim measures. And a futuristic approach is is not cutting it. Uh, emissions continue to increase in the world. So if we're going to ignore uh, a partial solution that we have uh, right on our doorsteps here, that's completely negligent on the on the part of the Liberal government.
1: Yeah, I wonder, like, I mean, the current offshore producers here, the only reason they're not producing any gas because they can't make a buck at it. So there's going to be a difference between some of the landlocked gas reserves that are in different parts of the country. Offshore here, we're sitting on the gas. I mean, they're currently either flaring it off or reinjecting it to push the oil up out of the ground. So there's still some uh, work to be done on that front. And with emissions control, Clifford, one of the issues put forward by uh, Mr. Poliev and other leaders inside your party is about carbon capture. Now, there's different types of carbon capture out there, but the more that it's being studied and investigated, the less it looks like it's a real problem legitimate part of the solution. We we're told initially carbon capture can reduce emissions by 80 to 90%. The research done on the 15 biggest flagship carbon capture projects in the world shows the numbers closer to 20%, 30%. Where does carbon capture play a role in your party's plan?
13: Well, you know, if, if, those, in, if those industries were properly incentivized and you, if you make it worth their while to capture the carbon, they'll capture it. And, that, and that's where the focus needs to be. Instead of some futuristic uh, plan that's pie in the sky. And carbon capture does work. I've read articles where, where I've seen there's great advancements in carbon capture and sequestration, and the industry wants to do that. And you're gonna see naysayers. You, I mean, you can remember when you're, you, know, you did your high school English, You could write a persuasive uh, article on anything. So we've got to be careful when we're reading these articles. They're written from a point of view to convince someone of that point of view. And there's very skillful writers out there. So you always be wary of that, Patty.
1: Well,. Fair warning, but I would suggest that is very much a two-way street. Uh, When we're talking about policy, because I couldn't care less about the politics of it. I just want, want the policies to be good, and I don't care which party brings forward the good policy, to be honest with you. It's neither here nor there for me. I just want things to work. And, you know, natural gas, there's nothing clean. There's nothing green perfectly green or clean everything comes with environmental cost including natural gas even if we just talk about the production because you can talk about emissions on site but then also have to include emissions downstream so again whether it be wind or solar or hydrogen or uh, tidal grab or it it all comes with the cost so does hydroelectricity which we focus a, a lot on in this province so nothing's perfectly green or perfectly clean i'll give you the last comment before we say goodbye this morning cliff
13: Yep, there's nothing perfectly green or perfectly clean. There's not. You're absolutely right. And
1: there's cleaner and greener, though,
13: yes. Here's some figures on producing a gigawatt of wind power. And I support wind power. So to produce a single gigawatt of wind power, you need 44 million pounds of copper, 150,000 tons of steel, 24,000 tons of iron, 1,000 tons of aluminum, 700,000 tons of concrete and 12,000 tons of fiberglass. So, you know, wind energy is great. It's going to support our natural resource extraction industries. Um, But there's, it's not, you, you take a gigawatt, it's nothing. So, we're going to need to produce a lot of our natural resources. There are no electric shovels, no electric trucks. All of these things have to be mined and produced using uh fossil fuels so you know we've got a long way to go and uh, yeah green hydrogen definitely part of the the solution in the future but we you you have to remember those figures that i just gave you and i'm very happy to support the the uh green hydrogen project in my riding in in botwood i've got the only copper mine in newfoundland and labrador uh, down on the Bayvert peninsula so the more these windmills go up the more copper that comes out of that copper mine on the beaver peninsula
1: we've got the critical minerals and there's going to be a global spat over the uh, extraction production and distribution of those i appreciate the time cliff thanks for this
13: you're welcome take care
1: take care bye okay. cliff Small, cpc member of costa bay central notre dame uh, gigawatt is a billion watts we can all wrap our mind around a watt, you know, because it would be a light bulb in your home. Uh, so, yeah, gigawatt is a billion watts. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Just then, a quick note about copper. Of course, lots of copper at Voices. And uh, I'm told that at uh, IOC, somewhere in the neighborhood, a, a high percentage of the shovels are actually electric as well. Okay, here we go. Appreciate the info. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Anne. You're on the air.
6: Well, good morning. Um, thank you for taking my call. No I'm a problem. little nervous, so please bear with me.
1: Take your time. Um,
6: um, on August the 8th, uh, my sister was diagnosed with uh, stage 4 lung cancer. Oh, my. So um, with that, they wanted to do a PIT scan um, to, I guess, to see if it was in her bones. So they said she'd be about maybe two to three weeks so It was more closer to three weeks So she did get the, pan, uh, the PIT scan done Actually, I think it's going to be um, three weeks this coming Thursday um, Since then, like I say, she hasn't, she hasn't spoken or heard from anyone So today, she's contacted her doctor And he's away now on holidays until the 24th of October Um, you know, she's been waiting this long. It's like they've diagnosed her and they forgot about her because she's heard nothing and she has spoken to no one.
1: So do we even know if the PET scan has been read yet or we're simply it's been read, but it's on her oncologist desk who happens to be away?
6: Um, well, um, normally it doesn't take that long. Um, for the PIT scan. Like, we've talked to, you know, um, a few people that have had a PIT scan done, and they certainly haven't been three weeks, almost three weeks waiting for it. Um, She hasn't been, uh, like, normally we would think that there would be an oncologist in place for her, but she has nowhere, or she doesn't know where to turn right now because... She just called her doctor's office and the secretary said that he's away until the twenty fourth. So where does that leave her really? You know, she's been waiting um, given the diagnosis and we're coming up over maybe close to eight weeks. That's nothing.
1: And so not only no word, but not even on a course of treatment as of yet?
6: Nothing, sir. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And who do you call really?
1: That's a good question. You know, other than department leads or department heads, I wouldn't even know where else to turn because if the doctor that she should be seeing next is away till I believe you said the 24th of this month, I wouldn't know where to turn.
6: No. So I, I just, I mean, I know that the healthcare is not in a good place for now, but You know, it's a long time waiting when you've been giving that diagnosis.
1: Absolutely. Not only for managing symptoms and potentially getting better, but what it does to your mind and everyone around you. Absolutely has huge implication.
6: Yep, absolutely.
1: You know, look, I I don't know. I'm sorry,
6: go ahead. I don't know if there's anybody out there that could, you know, if there's somewhere that she can call or... You know, because they have to wait again until the 24th. Like there is something really, really wrong with the system.
1: There's no argument there and you're living it. Um, So let's see, I'm just trying to find a quick number here, if possible. I I don't know if I'm going to be able to locate it quickly, but someone just popped into my mind. Maybe. Look, I know you, you, you'll get a patient navigator once you get into the cancer treatment uh, churn for whatever the, di- whatever the uh, treatment is that's going to be prescribed. So maybe, just maybe, if you call the Bliss Center and see if there's a patient navigator who can just give you some guidance because they're living it and working it day in and day out. So I would try that to begin with. Okay. So that would be the Bliss? Yeah, the Dr. H. Bliss Murphy Cancer Center right there at the Health Sciences. If you call and just ask if there's potential to speak with a patient navigator, because, you know, just describe the situation you find yourself in or your sister and see if they can give you some guidance or somewhere to turn or some advice because they would know much more about it than I would. So I'd start there.
6: Okay. Okay, thank you so much for your time.
1: Anytime, man. Let me know if you have any luck. If not, we'll go back to the drawing board.
6: Okay, thank you so much.
1: You're welcome, man. Wish your sister well for me.
6: Thank
1: you. Have a great day. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. Yeah, boy, that's a long time to wait. Uh, let's go to line number two. Wayne, you're on the air.
14: Good morning, Patty.
1: Good morning to you. Uh, I'm calling
14: about the moose fencing. Uh, I think on Friday the minister—I I don't really know his name—was involved with, uh, I guess, putting up the moose fencing. They're going to do a study uh, or something on uh, on the moose fencing. Okay. Uh, three months ago, I was talking to Mr. Byrne, him about uh, the moose fence that's in place on the West Coast and all the trees that's down across it. That's three months ago to see if they can get something done with it because it works very well. The fencing works very well. I, I'm a truck driver, so I deal with moose pretty constantly across the island. And one place that you can relax a little bit is from Ergill Road to Glensternoff. I think it's twice now I've seen moose outside the fence since i have been there. I, I can't remember being an accident in that section. And here they are now. The government's going to do a study to see if it's feasible to put fencing
1: across on I wasn't here on Friday, so I assume Linda was speaking with uh, John Abbott. He's the new Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure after Elvis yeah. Lovelace was moved out of the portfolio. Look, I mean, sometimes the whole bit about what we're going to do a study. Moose fencing exists, not only on, in this province, but elsewhere. You know, to look at what the risk was and the number of collisions prior to the fence being installed should be pretty fundamental math to be able to wrap your mind around whether or not it works. It's not going to be perfect. You will see moose outside the fence, but certainly not to the extent you would if there was no fence and yes we can talk about the snow might allow moose to jump the fence and yes there might be snow and storms that knock fences down and it won't be just a matter of putting them up and then they're there forevermore. but we kind of understand those things right and then people will say well what about access to the backcountry you know i want to be able to not have to go 15 kilometers you mean you can put the cattle gates in right i mean when we lived and worked in jasper there was a fence around the golf course to keep the elk off as much as possible and for the walkers or the golf carts we just went over the cattle gate
14: this on the mainland, like true Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, uh, the man gates, as we call them, the small gates, they're big enough up there for you to bring your four wheeler through them. Here in Newfoundland, the ones they put there is just barely big enough to walk through. Okay. But if they don't s- soon have a maintenance program in place to even look after the, pre- the existing fence that's there, there's not going to be a fence there because with all these trees, at least 20 trees down across the fence. And now with the snow coming on, well, that's going to bring the fence down.
1: Yes, because as you rightfully point out, just putting it up as the initial expense. That doesn't mean that's the last time you're going to have to do anything or spend any money on
14: them. Right. They haven't been touched since they put them there.
1: Okay. How long, right. how, how long have they been there? Do you know?
14: I would say about 10 years now, close on it. Okay. I'm thinking that number's coming to mind for for some reason, but... I don't know if it's actually that long and maybe not. It could be eight years, something like
1: that. Yeah, not that it was ultimately that important. I was just curious if you had a number off the top of your head. But fair enough. But I I like I drive to the mainland and stuff
14: and every section of road that's being upgraded now there's fencing going in. Uh, through New Brunswick, true Nova Scotia. Every every kilometer of road that's to Trans Canada is the fencing is going in with it. And I don't know why they don't do it here. Well, I asked Mr. Burn that, and he said he didn't think of it.
1: Well, I mean, there's notorious hot spots, right? Around Salmon Air Line or out in certain parts yeah. of Central and up the Northern Peninsula. There are spots where we know the potential uh, for a moose to be struck by a vehicle is higher than in other areas. Even if yeah. you just start with some of those spots, you know, let's do that as a study. Let's not look at what's worked elsewhere because we know that it has some potential positive impact. Is Let's just put up a fence in one of the real notorious spots and let's see what it looks like for the course of the, the most dangerous six months.
14: You know, well, I don't know. I don't know if they can really do that. Why not? This poor man that got killed last week up to Birchy, thats in an area where you don't see very many moose. In that pertain, precise area, there, right? Okay, all right. Now, just west of it, yes, there's moose, but in that exact area, that kilometer of road, uh, I've never seen in forty odd years. I've never seen a moose in that area.
1: Well, you're the man on the road. You know more about it than I do. I, you know, I don't go a whole lot further. Uh, frequently, Beyonce, Salmoner Line, Whitburn area. But I guarantee right. you there's certain spots on the Salmoner Line, for instance, that are notorious. Oh. Yes,
14: yes. Uh, anywhere, Butterpot Park, you've got trees close to the road, they're going to cross. Uh, anybody, Foxtrap area, from that to Patty's Pond, you've got moose crossing Right. didn't cross almost anywhere Sure, but I know how they're going to do a study to see where, where the heavier population and the most dangerous spots, at. I don't know how they're going to do that other than drawing some notes themselves and, and you might drive across down and not see a
1: moose yeah you're right there uh, and you know there's certain parts of the province where there's absolutely tons of moose and not great highway networks but yet people are aware so they also adjust their behaviors accordingly whether it be speed or time of day that they travel if they have an option so yes between cutting back the alders, watching your speed to uh, uh, cognizant of the time of day it all plays a role and fencing belongs as some part of that conversation wayne i'll give you the last thought before i have to get to the news break
14: i think when they're doing the roads uh do it to finish the sides like they do on the mainland and have tractors keeping it mowed down. I'm, I'm sure there's federal funding out there to start this program and uh, start looking at that. You've got small provinces like PEI that does this. So why can't Newfoundland get on board with this?
1: There's no reason why beyond money. Uh, after sure. the break, I go away and appreciate the time. All Drive right. safe. Thank you. You're welcome. All bye bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break for the news. Don't go away.
0: Join Craig Smith weeknights at 5:45 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration, shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your V O C M.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Sean. You're on the air. Hello, Pat. How are you? Doing okay this morning. How are you doing?
15: Uh, I can't complain. <laughs> So, so it I says on my subject.
1: Sean, it says on my subject line that you are uh, one of the residents of the Tent City. Is that true?
15: Actually, uh, I'm the founder of Tent City. I uh, I got sick of being homeless and trying to work all at the same time, so I figured I'd pitch my tent right next to the Confederation to try to make a stand.
1: Good on you. So before we get into Tent City and some of the issues, describe what homelessness meant to you prior to this move that you and others have made.
15: Uh, well, prior to this, uh, it's been, well, okay, so I will start that uh, I left Newfoundland a long time ago to work uh, abroad, you know, Ontario, BC, what have you, uh, recently came home last year to try to uh just be home. Cause like all my family live here, uh, friends that I haven't seen in many years live here. So I wanted to come home and, and, you know, try to make my life here with my, with a business. Like I work in construction, so I usually do my own construction. So I figured I'd be able to do it down here. Uh, it hasn't done me so well <laughs> so far. Uh, and ever since day one, I found myself on the street, uh, struggling trying to pick up the pieces to actually sustain a, a full living
1: okay and so push came to shove and you made this decision been followed by many others and it is quite a sight that's for sure like I mean it's not new to see tents in some public spaces but it's different these days there's more and more the tents more and more people who are homeless a variety of reasons why so just walk us through what you're asking for or demanding or however you want to couch it.
15: Literally, the only thing that I'm looking for out of this is safe, affordable homes for myself and everyone that followed behind me. Because it, it, it is a human right to be able to live somewhere and not have to you know, worry about if you're going to die throughout the night because of weather change or... Uh, you know get sick because of weather or any of these reasons like it, and and it's like the government doesn't really care about their their constituents in their public it doesn't make sense to me how they can let people just
1: live that way now what? I know that oh sorry go ahead no i I didn't mean to interrupt what does affordable look like for you
2: uh,
15: do you know what if I could get a house uh, anywhere uh, you know it, because i work you know it shouldn't be anything above say 1500 for a two bedroom something like that would be sufficient and i believe that you know that's affordable if you're working people that are on social assistance and stuff like that you you barely have enough to to pay your rent i'm sure not alone be able to pay for your groceries and any toiletries that you may need bed linens so like these are things that the government needs to take into aspect as well there are many people that have disabilities that can't work that are not getting enough money for living allowance as well like these things need to change so that people can actually sustain a, a decent living
1: And people are saying they're not leaving until they get what they're asking for. So the concept is, and I think it's been offered, is a bed in an emergency shelter. Your thoughts when that's one of the options offered?
15: That would be a definite no. Uh, uh, I'm not willing to take shelter uh, because once you're in a shelter, they're just going to bounce you around to a different shelter, different shelter. And I don't believe shelters are safe. Like, I, uh, I stayed at uh, a shelter here in St. John's earlier this year. I won't say which one, uh, but I witnessed a, a man getting stabbed while I was sleeping two beds away. I, that's not something that I consider safe. Um, you know, the staff did nothing about it. There was nothing ever done. It never, ever hit the media. I don't understand why. But, like, these things are, like... That's not a small issue like that should have been taken and addressed like firmly and it was never ever looked at so like the shelter idea for me and the people that are following me I don't think is a safe idea and I told them that and I, I'm not divvying from what I want from myself and my girlfriend so I don't think anyone else should either.
1: Do you think that what you're looking for is available today?
15: I do actually uh, and there are many different options it's just they're not publicly known not to mention if the government actually really cared about their people Um, there are multiple, multiple abandoned homes, abandoned buildings across St. John's. I mean, like, I took two days away from Tent City to go out and do some street advocating and just figure things out on my own, and I found people sleeping on park benches, underneath patios, and and I look at these other places that are abandoned, I'm like, these could be turned into a really beautiful spot for people to live and be comfortable, have their own private rooms, maybe even like a shower that would be communal and a kitchen but like a, it could be a, a wonderful thing for the community and not only just the community but the whole province uh, it's just the government is not willing like some of these buildings there's two behind Brother Rice uh, one of which I know has been abandoned for over 20 years because we used to play around in it when
1: we were kids is that McPherson school is that what you're referring to uh
15: Brother Rice high school well it used to be a high school I don't know what it is anymore but uh Right behind Brother Rice there's two buildings that are abandoned and uh, I know one of them is uh, an old Victorian-style building and it's been there for many, many years and it's been abandoned for many, many years.
1: Yeah, I think that belonged and, to the uh, church. If I'm not mistaken, that was either a rectory or a, the nuns lived there or something, if I remember correctly.
15: I, I'm not 100% mm-hmm. uh, um, what it was but uh, I, do, I do know that We used to play around in it when we were kids. And, uh, you know, it was abandoned back then, 20 years ago. So I can't imagine, you know, why they haven't done anything with it nowadays to kind of do something for the public to keep homeless people safe from different aspects of weather or, you know, other people's problematic attitudes and such. But... It's, it's just mind-boggling
1: to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I understand. And, and also, let's just say, you know, we'll hear that there was an announcement some while back about 750 affordable units being built, and there's the possibility to repurpose some uh, abandoned buildings and homes, all of which will come with some sort of time. I'm not even going to mention the money, but money is part of it, but it's also going, going, uh, pardon me, going to come with a lapse of time between someone saying, here's what we're going to do, Uh, compared to when you'll actually be able to live in it. You and whoever else would be eligible for any of these lodgings. If there was anything pragmatically put forward that was concrete, had the meat on the bone, what would your reaction be? What would you do?
15: My reaction, first off and foremost, would be to talk to the government and say, hey, first off, you don't need to wait because I know that the money aspect of it, because I am a contractor, so I understand that. But if the money is there, and I know that the government has the money for the funding for renovations, there are many people that are here on these grounds right now that would help me as a contractor and rebuild these places to make them really nice places for people to live. Uh, And I, for one, would be the first to stand up with my hammer and my saws and be like, let's do this. Because I, I love building, I love working, and I can't wait to get back into a place where I feel safe and it's my own domain and, and be able to do these things that I love to do on a daily basis.
1: Just as an but, aside, with a, as a contractor with your own tools, however many tools you have, saws, hammers, and wrenches, and the like, what do you do with them? Where are they? How do you keep them around, or do you have someone uh, taking care of them for you?
15: Well, actually, when I go to jobs, usually what I do is, uh, because mo- all my tools right now are in a uh, storage locker in Ontario, but okay. what I've been doing since I've been in Newfoundland, I would go to Home Depot, because I am a contractor, and I do have a number with them, and I would just rent a bunch of tools, whatever I need it for the day, for that job particularly, do my job, and that would be it. I'd pay for the tools at the end of the job. <laughs>
1: Sean, you know, people talk about uh, shelters don't feel safe, and you witness a stabbing, so there's all people need to know about that one particular shelter, and I would imagine similar circumstances in other shelters. Then we talk about people trying to, you know, get off certain drugs, and then they see people using around them, consequently making their task even more difficult than it already is. Do you feel safe in your tent?
15: I do actually, believe it or not, I actually do. I know that it's not really a dwelling as such and it's not really a safe environment. Like, you know, people can cut through my tent if they want to, but inside these walls of the tent, it kind of feels like it's my own, like, because I do own it, uh, but it's not it's not the ends of all. Like I, I, I want to have my own home again. I, I want, I want to be able to shower when I want. I want to be able to cook the meals that I want to cook. I want to, I want to do all these things. If I want to have tile on my floor, I'll have tile on my floor. If I want to have carpet, I'll have carpet. You know what I mean? Like these are things that I want for myself. Uh, I'm not. I can't speak for everyone on these grounds what they want, but I do know there are people here that are struggling with addictions. And they've been doing extremely well to not do it or disappear while they do it and then come back.
1: Um, So you are seeing some drugs present because that's one of the issues that the shelters, uh, that's one of the problems posed by shelters, the way we currently staff them, manage them, supervise them. So are you seeing that type of drug consumption? Are you seeing any violence where you are?
15: No, there's not really any violence um but there there is a little bit of uh drug use but not not uh, not crazy drugs i guess um a some people some people smoke a little bit of marijuana i use marijuana actually myself for pain uh the government like not Newfoundland government, Ontario. I fought with the Ontario government for many years before marijuana was legal to get a drug card instead of having to take uh opiates for the pain that I'm in every day. Um, so you know, when people stay away from the pills and that to go for marijuana, I think it's not really a drug use at that time. But there has been a little bit of drug use here, not needles and such, but um uh, Uh, other types of drugs uh, alcohol and stuff like that there Um, but some people are trying to you know there's a couple people that are severe alcoholics but they've been doing really well instead of having to drink you know a full bottle of booze every day they're down to like three or four shots because they came and followed my movement and I'm kind of proud to say that they've lowered their drug use in hopes to have a permanent place to live.
1: Sean, I appreciate the time uh, on the show here this morning. I appreciate what you're doing, and you're, you're always welcome. Be safe.
15: Thank you very much, Patty, and I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Same to you. Okay. bye. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Bye-bye. Uh, interesting. Good conversation uh, for someone who's actually living it. You know, there's nothing quite like lived experience to bring to the table while we try to navigate these tricky situations. Uh, Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Where would you like me to go here, David? I wasn't paying attention to the queue. Line number one, say good morning to local author Helen Eskett. Good morning, Helen. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Oh, excellent. Absolutely excellent. Terrific. What's going on?
9: Well, we got our Operation Masonic Mystery and History walking tour of the Ecclesiastic District coming up this Sunday, and we uh, I wanted to tell you all about it, because it's it ripped from the pages of my best-selling book, Operation Masonic.
1: Tell us whatever you want to talk about this morning. Helen, go right ahead.
9: Perfect. Well, people often ask me if the locations in my books are true, and all my books are in Newfoundland or set in Newfoundland and Labrador, and the province becomes a main character in each book. So I and my books are not just about the who done it. I take you on a journey. I like to take you on a journey where you're going to learn something that you never knew about this province before. And in Operation Masonic, there's a murder down at the uh, Masonic Temple, and the Masonic Temple down at Cathedral Street. I don't know if people realize this; it should be a national historic site because it was the first Masonic Temple built in North. America uh, back in uh, the late 1800s, when we were still a British colony. And at that time, Newfoundland was considered the Gibraltar of North America because of our strategic point. So for the Masons to put their headquarters here, that was very strategic, and there was a reason for that. And in the book, we go back to the history of Freemasonry, and we find out all the secrets of Masons in the province. And that starts with, uh, we start at the Basilica of uh saint john's baptist and we go down to uh the gower street united church and the anglican church the saint andrews presbyterian the kirk and uh, and we do a whole history mystery walking tour where we point out all the masonic symbols and we point out all the um the the, the things down there that show you that uh, that that gonna kind of document our history back through time and it's very interesting because you're gonna see things you never knew was there.
1: Right back to the Temple of Solomon, I assume. And what, what do they, what's that religious term associated with that collection of churches? Is that the the ecclesiastical square or it's something? Called
9: the yeah it's it's this is very unique to Newfoundland. I don't think people know this, but so the Saint John's Ecclesiastical District National Historic Site of Canada is what it's called. It starts at the Basilica and goes down To uh, the well, it kind of takes in the Masonic Temple, then the Anglican uh, Church, and then the Presbyterian Church, and then go up to the Kirk. And what's unique about that is anywhere you go in the world, religions build on opposite sides of the city, they don't build in a circle in the center of town, they stay away from each other. So, the fact that all these religions have built this circle around this area and there's always been rumors of tunnels that connect these places and that's what the book is about it goes back to the history of that and why that's there and why i think the freemasons did not bury any treasure over in oak island because nova scotia had already joined canada in the 1800s they brought their treasure here, and I think it's still here to this day.
1: You know, people talk about the tunnels uh, for squires to escape the colonial building and what have you, What are there any actual tunnels in that area, that ecclesiastical circle? I've always heard that, but it always felt more like myth or legend to me.
9: They, there have been tunnels found, like the the houses with the Four Sisters. There, I've been in the basements of those, and you can see where the tunnels were closed up. And there was rumour there were tunnels going from government house to the old Newfoundland Hotel. And there's been tunnels of, uh, you know, always, um, I guess, people saying there's tunnels in that area of that uh, ecclesiastic district. But because it's a protected area, you can't go looking for them.
1: yeah. I mean it's intriguing it's certainly a great subject matter to write about so with your thoughts that Oak Island is simply a TV show not an actual treasure site uh, has there anyone ever entertained the treasure hunt that would be the likely next steps if what you say is true
9: well, that's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm hoping the book is going to inspire, is that, uh, you know, it's, if you actually – there's a Masonic symbol of a dot within a circle and then two lines on either side. And if you take that symbol and put it over the Ecclesiastic circle, it actually fits. So I think there's something there. But like I said, it is a historic site. You can't go poking and you can't go digging. So that in itself tells you there's something being protected down in this area and that's what the walking tour does we take you around and we give you all that information and then you can kind of decide what you want to believe well what you read about the masons in the book is true
1: great stuff so give us the details one more time about the where the whens for the upcoming event
9: So it's coming up this Sunday, October 15th, from 3 to 5, and I'm going to be joined by John Fitzgerald, and he is the historian at the Basilica Heritage Foundation. And uh, actually, John was my expert contact when I was writing the book, and I ended up making him a character in the book. So if you read Operation Masonic, you know James Fitzgerald is the historian. Mm -hmm. Well, he's actually—so you're not only toying with the author, you're toying with one of my characters, but he is a murder suspect, so don't stand too close. And uh, so the tour is on Sunday, October Fifteen from three to five. We're starting at the Basilica. You can get your tickets on Eventbrite. They're twenty-five dollars, and that's a fundraiser for the district. All the money goes back to them, and uh, or you can just go to my Facebook site at Helen C. And, uh, or the uh, Ecclesiastic District Facebook site, and the link is there to buy tickets. You can only get them online. And if you don't have Operation Masonic, it's from Flanker Press. You can pick it up at uh, Kohl's or Chapters or Irvings or all kinds of gift stores throughout the province, and you can get it online at Indigo, Amazon, or HelenCFGit.com.
1: You're funny like that, Helen.
9: I know, right? It's like, I'm funny like that, and then I'm planning murders.
1: I think it was brilliant. Uh, thanks for making time. Good luck with the event and sales of the book.
9: Thanks, Patty, and you should come on our tour with us.
1: Uh, if I have time, I'm actually kind of interested now, because historical site or not, I'm bringing a metal detector.
9: You know, I got one in the trunk of my car, believe it or not, <laughs> I do.
1: Thanks for the time, Helen.
9: Thanks, Eddie. Have a great day. You
1: too. Bye-bye.
8: Okay, bye.
1: All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the barriers that are in place to try to get a bed in a shelter. And Tim's in the queue. He sent me a couple of videos and some pictures about the what the pedal bikers are seeing downtown. Don't go away. Get
0: lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Mark, you're on the air. Hey, Patty.
16: how it you go inside.
1: Not bad. How about you?
16: Pretty good. Uh, Modzy day. Um, it's, uh, it's cooling down quite a bit. And I wanted to call you and let your listeners know just all of what's involved with trying to get into a homeless shelter. Um, last night, so as you know, uh, you know we've talked before. I've been, I guess it's been about four weeks. Many of us have been trying to help uh, one gentleman who uh, get into the shelter system and eventually into some kind of housing unit. He slept in the back of my truck for about... I think it was 5 out of the last uh 6 days. I guess that would have that's a couple of days old now. So, 5 of the last 8 days or so um that he was just showing up in the back of and sleeping in the back of my truck outside of my house downtown. Um which really wasn't a good option for anybody, especially, you know, for him, uh also for me. I didn't want him there. Um, but there are a lot of barriers. Last night, Patty, I, uh, I was walking on Livingstone Street. I, I ran into somebody and just sort of asked them, hey, are you okay? Um, they weren't okay, and they were trying to get into the shelter system, but they had no phone. And this is what I wanted to focus my call on today, is that homeless people often simply don't have phones. And can't be called back from the emergency shelter line. So this guy was, this guy is, is 22 years old. He's, he was right next to Choices for Youth. He can't go there because something, something happened there and he's unable to stay there. Normally that would be the place that he could stay so he he said, you know, there's no shelters available. I guess he had called the day before. There was nothing available. He ended up um, not last night, but the night before, sleeping in an eight, you know, somewhere warm where there was an ATM until security kicked him out, and then he slept in a parking garage. Um, but I called the emergency shelter line. I didn't take no for an answer. I asked to speak to a manager. I asked to speak to somebody. Um in the shelter line, specifically from the government side. So the, the way the way the shelter line works, Patty, have, have you ever called there?
1: No, I have not.
16: The way it works is basically you get connected with an answering service. Typically, that's who you speak to initially. And that answering service says, okay, what's your name, uh, your age, your date of birth? And they pass on a message to somebody within the NL housing um, unit that will uh, then, you know, respond to that call. So it's an email essentially. So you're sending an email out. Some Just imagine somebody who is homeless is calling in, getting a hold of somebody, and then, then them saying, what's your phone number? We'll call you back. And the answer, in my experience, in trying to help people downtown, the answer is generally I don't have a phone. Um, so we're initially missing all kinds of people in trying to provide a shelter.
1: Can people simply show up at an emergency shelter to see if there's a bed for the night?
16: Well, that's, that's what they said last night. You can go to the gathering place, but then, you know, as I was talking to this young, this young person, somebody else showed up and said, I need a shelter for tonight too. So, uh, you know, here I am talking to two people. And that, that came up, you know, just go up to the gathering place. And what they said was, no, you got to be in by eight. So whether that's true or a perception, uh, I'm not sure. Um, You can, you know, I've directed people to the Wiseman center downtown during the day where you can go and get a little bit of help. But, you know, often what I find is that people are trying to beg for a few dollars because, you know, the couch surfs that they're used to, you know, they've kind of given up, essentially, many of the folks on the shelter, on N.L. housing, on finding affordable an affordable uh, property for themselves. Many of them have mental health issues that, uh, you know, they're that are causing problems alongside this lack of affordable housing. So, you know, all in all, it's tough for them to go somewhere and by the end of the day there's there's limited options in terms of what what they where they can go to try to get that help, uh especially on a holiday like yesterday you know, I was told, oh, it's a holiday, you can't talk to somebody um so what I did was I basically said, you know look- look, uh, give me a manager and uh and eventually they <laughs> through nothing but sheer persistence they they put me through to somebody because I was not going to give up. And we found this gentleman a shelter, and it was the new shelter there up on St. Clair, which I've been to twice now in the last week.
1: Is that, that one of the safe havens?
16: Oh. Um, I think it's safe havens number 10 St. Clair. Okay. Yeah. It's a, basically, it's a big room, so I can describe it. It's a, it's a huge room. There's, I think, 40 cots in there. There's sort of an area where you can kind of hang out and watch TV. There's food. I think there's food every day at 6 p.m., but not before. Um, so, it, I mean, it's, it, it, I want to reiterate, like, it is really hard for somebody who is homeless to make these phone calls initially. Mm-hmm. Then to, you know, it, it's virtually impossible if you don't have a phone to get a call back. So yes, you can go to a shelter, but often people are just not, you know, for whatever reasons, they're not doing that. It's not it's not an established um method or it's not an established avenue for folks that I need downtown. So, you know, first of all it shows maybe we need somebody from in our know, housing or somebody from cssd walking around or maybe they need to support some of the street reach folks over at Thrive to say, you know, we need, uh, we need folks walking around to ensure that people have shelters for the night. But it's just not there. And the, the simple barrier of uh, having a, not having a phone is causing a lot of people to just give up and sleep in a parking garage.
1: Yeah, and no real widespread understanding of the process, period, even if you have a phone. Uh, Mark, I appreciate the time and the effort you're putting in here. Anything else quickly before I take another call?
16: Yeah, I mean, uh, like the, we, we spent the last week trying to sort of get together some low-hanging fruit of what government can do. So simply when you call the shelter line, make sure somebody is there that can actually take you know take the person's information and say yes or no just make it simple i i want to just talk also about um the affordable rental housing program that that uh, cssd i think john abbott had um announced oh geez maybe in march um Maybe even earlier. Anyways, that closed August 31st. We're still waiting on the results. What, what are the results from that private sector stream? Government has relied on the private sector to come forward, uh, has incentivized this sector to provide a solution to the affordable housing uh, crisis. Um, I don't believe that the solution is there. But, then, you know, once we have the results of, of those RFPs, we'll know a lot more. So what are the results? Why is government holding on to this information? It's been since August 31st, and we're in the middle of a crisis. So ultimately, I mean, the premier needs to treat this like a crisis.
1: Well, it certainly is that. It is that because, you know, remember, we've gotten the back and forth, and so it kind of costs Kathy Dunderdale her job, which she wouldn't call uh, dark NL a crisis. We sometimes get caught up in the label, but this one is absolutely uh, apt and appropriate. Uh, Mark, appreciate the time. Thank you.
16: Thanks a lot, Patty. And, you know, look at uh, just quickly, you know, B.C. has something called New Market Funds. This is something where investors can, uh, can put money aside to support cooperative housing uh, initiatives. Um, we've not incubated anything like that, and I think Siobhan Cody can, can look into that further. Why are we not incubating social capital uh, funding mechanisms so that, you know, so that we, as, uh, we as the, the public um, can actually create these solutions on our own, can create co-op housing because people are investing in it, and there is, you know, it is an uh, attract for investment. So I just want to point that out as well. And and you know, folks that are a little bit more financially minded can look into uh, new market funds of BC and of Toronto. And and maybe the question is, why don't we have that here?
1: Appreciate the time. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye bye. All right, final break in the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Tim, you're on the air.
17: Good morning, Patty. How are you?
1: Very well, thanks. How about yourself?
17: Oh, I'm doing very well. I uh, just wanted to clarify uh, on the videos, and I, I know it may have sounded like I was frustrated, but it was more concern for safety there than anything. I just, just you know, regard to that, but. Yeah, so I've been back and forth downtown a lot over the last number of months. Uh, I, I drop a family member down there who's recently got uh, employed, and parking is an atrocious. So uh, it, it's just more convenient to do it that way. But this morning was uh, was frustrating uh, with regards to these bikers, these pedal bikers there that were uh, kind of tying up the two lanes. Uh, it was it was it was a real concern they uh, they were all over the road there was nobody leading there were no hand signals there was traffic was backed up both lanes uh, heading to the waterfront and heading down water street it was it, they were shaky it was it was a mess an absolute mess i i my concern would have been for you know uh, senior drivers who may
1: First off Tim just paint the picture set the scene what what did you see okay.
17: So long story short, I'm, I'm I'm dropping my family member downtown uh, on Water Street to, to work in one of the boutiques there.
5: Uh,
17: and I get to the west side of Water Street, past the train station, kind of heading into that first intersection there, uh, once you get past the off-ramp coming from, from west. And uh, both lanes are completely tied up, uh, the one heading to the waterfront and the one heading to Water Street with... I guess, 10, 12 bikers, pedal bikers, some wearing safety, some not. um, Traveling very slow, very wobbly and shaky. Uh, They all appear to be seniors. I'm not far from that myself, Patty, so I I get it. Um, And again, like I said, both lanes completely blocked off, waving in and out. Sometimes they'd wave over and down coming traffic. Uh, Every now and then they would stop uh, and the person ahead would turn around and give some sort of direction to them. And then they'd make their way on again, traveling at very slow speeds. Uh, Not really focusing on the traffic, uh, not really looking to see if there's anybody darting in and out. It, It was an absolute terrifying five, six, seven minutes. Uh, and I know the video seemed like I was close, but I had a family member that was kind of had the video opened up. We were further away uh, than the video had uh, had shown or looked like it was showing. It, it just concerned me. It concerned me for other drivers that were coming through that were maybe less patient than me or were nervous drivers or first-time drivers. It, it concerned me that they had no idea, the paddle bikers had no idea with regards to road safety or etiquette. Uh, they pay, were not paying attention to anything going on besides them. Uh, they didn't have any direction where they were going. They were just kind of haphazardly going down Water Street, weaving in and out, waving out to oncoming traffic. It, it was a mess. And I know we have struggles here in this city and in, in St. John's with regards to lanes for pedal bikers and, and the whole laws and rules that go along with that. But there has to be there has to be some knowledge, there has to be some education courses, there has to be some solutions so we do not get into these situations where there could be frustrations. Another driver may may run up on them or scream or honk or create and that in itself causes issues because they become more nervous as they're pedaling their bike. So there's so many different things that could have taken place there. And, and it was it was just frustrating for me to see that take place this morning. And I uh, just wanted to send that into you to make people aware when they are in those areas to be cautious, one, in case you do see bikers on the road. And two, if you are a biker, learn the rules off the road. Uh, don't make yourself a target because there are people out there that just don't care. Uh, there are people out there that won't see you, uh, and it's too late once it's done because your life is forever affected, and the person that hits you's life is forever affected. Yeah, and we need to be aware of that, right?
1: We're sharing the road. Uh, all hands need to understand where they are, why they're there, and the rules applicable to their operating their bicycle, their motorcycle, their Vespa, and/or their truck. So, hundred percent, Tim. Good. Appreciate the call and the and the subject.
17: Yeah, I, I thank you very much. I know it's small potatoes in comparison to what your other uh, callers were referencing with regards to homelessness and addictions, and I've seen such an increase in that in in, in the last number of years, especially this summer. Uh, it's, it's it's heartbreaking to see. I know people are crying out for places to stay. Home construction and everything else is down. I have 30-odd years in the construction industry, and, and it's, it's not great, and I don't know if if the, if the rumors I hear about the premier up away was asking you know people to come back home and invest in our own province but we don't have a whole lot on a horizon right now so uh homelessness uh and, and just homes in general uh it, it, we're hurting here in this province and uh, I, I don't know what the solution is but I, I sure hope the government gets involved here somewhere and helps to deal with all of that
1: 100 so. percent. thanks for this Tim
17: Patty, take care of yourself and enjoy your week.
1: Same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Yep. Uh, it can be pretty perilous out there on your bicycle or driving or riding in and around town. Let's go to line four. Caller, You're on the air.
12: Hello. 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 Um, Thank you for, for answering, and bless your heart for being so patient with these people who call. Uh, anyway, I just want to know why at the war memorial yesterday during a holiday, <clears throat> there was full-scale construction going on with enormous trucks and backup trucks and, and all kinds of noise. And there are people who live in this area who are trying to get together with their family and friends just to have a calm uh, holiday holiday time together. It was very very noisy and very very unpleasant and it seems strange for that to be going on at the War Memorial on a holiday. Do you know the answer to that?
1: No I don't but I do know that construction was going full bore on my street yesterday as well. There's a couple of homes that are getting some renovations done and they were both active sites yesterday and I suppose it's really basically up to the company right? Like one of my sons worked yesterday too so it was a holiday for some, not a holiday for all and I don't know the rationale or the reason as to okay. why they proceeded at to War Memorial maybe it's to try to get out of the neighborhood's hair sooner than later so that that might play a role maybe they're uh-huh. a bit behind schedule i really don't know what's going on there well, but
12: okay well thank you i didn't know either i thought maybe there was a rule that you couldn't do that sort of thing on a on a i thought it was a national holiday maybe it's not
1: Yeah, well, again, it's a government holiday. It's a shops closing holiday, those types of things. But like I said, one of my sons worked last night. Uh, The street where I lived, the two houses that are having some work done, I'm not exactly sure what work is going on, but the crews were there. I saw some paving outfit out working yesterday as well. So I was a little surprised to see as much work going on yesterday. But, of course, not everyone gets a day off. I was lucky, I suppose.
12: Okay. Thank you very much. And, and again, thank you for your patience in talking and listening to people. I, th- I find it very, very, very worthwhile and good for you.
1: I appreciate the kind words. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, and of course, Thanksgiving is not on the stat list. It's a holiday that companies either choose to give or not. I believe it is a full government holiday, but it's not one of the so-called national stats that people know what they are when they see them. All right, so let's check in on the Twitter box before we run out of time. So there was one comment or a couple of comments made earlier about where there's copper being mined in the province and whether or not, you know, some of the shovels and the trucks are actually electrified. And, of course, they are. I mean, vehicles are running by a bunch of different fuel sources now, from gasoline to diesel, and, yes, some gas driven, and there will be some hydrogen, and, yes, electric has made its way all to the large-scale trucks and shovels that you'll see on the mine sites. And they're massive people have actually sent along some private links to me with caterpillar trucks that are of the size and scope and scale that you can all picture that are being used on mine sites and yes so one fella said somewhere in the high 90 percent of the shovels at IOC are electric so yeah there's you know that world is happening and changing very very quickly and again it's not whether or not an electric vehicle is uh, of any interest to you it is an interest too many, and the say the pardon me the sales year over year are growing, and in some cases growing very quickly. All right, email address. Let's check in on that. It's openlineatvoceam.com. Lots of action, and if you're listening. And you have sent me an email over the course of the last couple of weeks. It has been absolutely a furious breakneck pace with which the emails are coming in. If you haven't heard back from me, and I try to respond to as many as I can, Uh, if you haven't heard back and it's something pressing that you really need me to see, if you resend it so it ends up at the top of my pile, I'll try to get to it. Okay. We'll pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.